Today's episode of Creepscast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. If you visit my special link right now, expressvpn.com slash mrcreeps, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support the show, watch what you want, and protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash mrcreeps. Hello everyone, I hope you're all doing well. We have another amazing episode for you this week, chocked full of spooky stories. Let's get into things, and drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. First, they shut down social media. Then, the government. Written by Binky Smales. My day started with my alarm failing. Dang, I thought, so I was going to be late for work. But instead of rushing around to get ready, I let my head hit the pillow, still sleepy from last night's late dinner at my sister's place. We'd get together every Thursday and talk, eat, maybe smoke a few, and really dig deep on all the weird stuff going on. I reached for my phone, and without really looking, told the Google Assistant to send a SMS to my boss saying that I had a really bad migraine and I wouldn't be at work today. She was cool with this. After all, I had been working late every day this week to get the final edits done on the first draft of the proposal for the new client. The pitch was still next Thursday, so we had some time. But Rebecca... The agency manager wanted the draft submitted to the creative team. The assistant didn't respond so, still half asleep. I messaged her complaining of a migraine without really looking at my phone. I did notice a bunch of red dots and numbers on my app, but I was just too sleepy to bother with them for now. Seconds later, her reply pained my phone. No problem, sleepyhead. She added a couple of smiley face emojis to let me know all was fine. I reached out to the phone, and without looking, turned it to silent with a side switch, and immediately fell back into a deep sleep. An hour later, my phone's vibrating on my bedside table woke me up. Sitting up, I stretched fell for the phone and got out of bed, heading for the kitchen and coffee. Nearly tripping over the cat, I opened the home screen to see who was messaging me. My phone showed 10 new messages. I had never had that many new messages ever, so I stopped to read them. Jason, my brother, Dude, where are you? Have you seen what's going on? Call me. Another from my sister, Reyna. Hey, what the heck is going on? Check your social media and call me. I stopped reading. Opened Facebook to see an error message. Huh. Instagram, the same. And then Twitter, too. What happened, I wondered. A hack. An outage of some massive sort. I opened up my news app and it was thankfully working. 
The first headline was from something that said, Social Media Outage. Hack. I scrolled down to see all the major outlets had a similar headline and story. No one knew why. Social media executives were in the dark and had no answers. Every social media application was down. Nothing would connect. Not mobiles or desktop browsers. Weird, I thought. But after the pandemic of the past two years, strange news seemed to be a regular occurrence. With the US military admitting UAPs were real, and that no country on earth could create that sort of tag, it seemed we might have drones or craft from who knows where in our skies and no military could do a thing about them. Making my coffee, I messaged my brother and sister telling them that I was off for the day and that I had no idea what was going on with the various social networks. I grabbed the remote off the coffee table while I waited for the kettle to boil. I switched to YouTube to watch the news, but that was not working either. I switched to regular television, and the local news channel was halfway through the report. Just repeating, all social media networks are down, and no one knows why or how. Reports from Russia, China, and Europe are all confirming that the outage has affected local, smaller networks too. Our correspondent who's following the story, Bryce Macon, is reporting from outside Facebook's head office. Bryce? Thank you, Catherine. Yes, as reported, all social media networks worldwide are offline, and social media executives have no explanation for the sudden outage. While some networks have experienced short outages in the past, Nothing like this has been seen before. All networks went offline at midnight local time, and an elite email from an executive at the Russian network VK shows all data, including server backups, are deleted, unable to be recovered. It is yet to be confirmed if other Western-based social media has experienced the same data loss. The news anchor, Catherine Wu, interrupted him. Bryce, we've just heard. She reached out for a document from an off-camera assistant. That the former director of IT at LinkedIn confirmed that he's been told all social networks are in the same position. Total loss of data and backup data. Bryce Macon's eyes widened on hearing that. Well, that's concerning news, Catherine. Whoever is responsible has demonstrated some powerful abilities to shut down some of the most protected sites on the web. And talk from my contact at VK is that it cannot be the work of hackers, not considering all of the networks are down at the exact same time. Well, thank you, Bryce. We'll come back to you soon. We have further reports from... I stopped listening, my mind ticking over, wondering how the heck did someone or some group do this. I poured my coffee, buttered some toast, and sat down on the couch. Flicking over to other channels, it was more of the same. 
concern and astonishment from various IT experts who were being interviewed on the outage. My phone pinged again. Another message. My sister had messaged, telling me she was coming over since I was home. I replied, well, I'll be here. I checked the other messages and all were from friends telling me the same thing, or asking if my Facebook or my Twitter were down too. Not replying, as the news on television answered those questions. I needed another coffee. Just as I was adding sugar, my phone pinged again, but the sound was off. Not the usual text message notification ping. A weird, deeper sound. Grabbing my phone, I saw on the home screen it wasn't an SMS. Instead a message that somehow wasn't attached to any app, but it was on the home screen. It said, A message. I tapped my screen on the message and it opened a window on my phone with the following text. Your social media has caused more suffering and damage than you know. We have closed them. They will not work again. Your governments have lied to you. Now is the time for truth. In 24 hours, we will reveal. That was it. No sign off. Nothing. I tapped the message window again and it was gone. Before I could take a moment to comprehend what I had just read, my phone pinged again. Four SMS messages in a row. Ping, 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 ping. First, my sister. Crap, what is going on? Then my brother with a similar message, adding he too was on his way over. My boss had messaged me too. How's the headache and what the heck is happening? Two other friends had similar messages. I replied the same to them all. No idea. Sitting down with fresh coffee, I resumed flicking through channels. The story had now expanded to include the mysterious text that appeared on all phones across the globe. One channel was reporting that every mobile phone on the planet had received the same message, even those without an online connection. God, I whispered it to the television. My cat looked over, seemingly concerned and then went back to snoozing on his chair in the corner. There were two knocks at the door. I jumped at the sound, and then my sister yelled out, Unlock the dang door. In minutes, she too had a fresh coffee and sat next to me. What's going on? She asked both me and herself. I don't know, but this is going to freak people out. A lot. For the next hour, we sat absorbing every report, with channels focusing now on the mystery message and many commentators bringing up the possibility that someone, or something, had caused the outage and sent that message. 24 hours and then what? Asked Reina. I had had a fascination with strange phenomena for years now. Listening to podcasts, 
reading news reports and books with, some of my family thinking that I had joined a cult or that I had added a tinfoil hat to my wardrobe. Over the past two years, those teasing comments had turned to questions. You know about this stuff. What is the Pentagon on about? Are those videos real? When reports went from funny end of news hour filler to the release of the UAP report, no one teased or made fun anymore. News outlets stopped playing the X-Files theme whenever someone reported unusual events in the skies. The questions people were asking were more along the lines of, has the government lied for decades? And who or what was flying those craft? My brother arrived and, without knocking, let himself in, and asked if we knew any more on what was happening. No, I said. Grab a coffee, we're trying to make sense of it all. 23 hours later, and most news outlets on television and radio were running a countdown. Some radio announcers making half-hearted attempts to lighten the mood by making jokes on air about the countdown, wondering what or who, if anything would actually reveal anything more on the deadline. My brother and sister had stayed overnight. Friends had come over after work, and we had ordered pizza as we sat, talked, and watched updates. Social media was still out, and it seemed like it was down for good. CEOs across a range of networks had tried to reassure users that they would be back to normal as soon as they could unravel what had caused things to crash and delete all the data. Behind the scenes, I had found out from a contact at Google that the mood was grim. Nothing that they had tried worked, and it really did seem that everything was lost. The news reported that billions of dollars were wiped off of stock exchanges around the world. Offline media shares had jumped in value, with many of those news outlets running non-stop news on what was being called the death of social media. The three of us were sitting on the couch again, watching the countdown. 60 seconds remained with a big clock counting down. The anchor was talking to a government senator about potential security threats due to the outage along with the mystery message. It's now just 15 seconds to go for the 24-hour deadline, the anchor said. The clock ticked, and the anchor picked up her phone and held it toward the camera. We also grabbed our phones. Five seconds. We held our breath. Four. Three. Two. One. Instantly, our phones all pinged that weird, deeper noise. The news anchor, too, had her phone ping. She almost jumped when her phone had pinged, too. She turned the phone to read, and we all did. And then she looked up at the camera, not sure what to do or say. And in the background of the news studio, we heard crew members begin talking in hushed voices. My brother and sister gasped as they read from their screens. I tapped and opened the same sort of window as before. The message read, We have arrived. Please do not take military action. It will fail. We are not here to harm. We are here to share. We are here to assist. 
you have been lied to. And go outside to look up. See. When we raced to the front door, Reyna was first. She stepped on my front lawn and looked up. We all did. What we saw stunned us. Neighbors too were out and staring at the sky. It was incredible. A massive object round like a small planet hovered over the city. It was white. It made no noise and it didn't move. It just hovered. We stared, not comprehending what we were looking at. Jason touched my shoulder without taking his eyes off the sphere. What the heck is that? It's a freaking UFO the size of a city. I just stood and stared. For many years, I had followed the topic, wondering who or what, and now, here we had an answer. We really were not alone. We had visitors. Okay, so we all know how a VPN protects your privacy and security online, right? But I didn't know this until recently, and it's taken my TV watching game to the next level. You can use a VPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. Over the weekend, I used ExpressVPN to binge the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air on Australian Netflix. It was so simple. I just fired up the ExpressVPN app, changed my location to Australia, refreshed Netflix, and that's it. You see, ExpressVPN hides your IP address and lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from one of almost 100 different countries. So, just think about all the Netflix libraries that you can go through. You love anime? Use ExpressVPN to access Japanese Netflix and be spirited away. But it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service. Hulu, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but the reason I use ExpressVPN is to watch shows. It is ridiculously fast. There's never any buffering or lag, and you can stream in HD with no problem. Express VPN is also compatible with all your devices, your phones, and media consoles, smart TVs, and more. So you can watch what you want on the go or on the big screen, wherever you are. If you visit my special link right now, expressvpn.com slash mrgreaves, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support the show, watch what you want, and protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash mrgreaves. The story that I don't tell from my sheriff days. Written by Reservoir Frogs 98. I can still remember it clearly all these years later. It was 1981 or 1982, I'm not entirely sure. But it was November that I do recall, late November. Winter had already crept in. You could feel the encroaching ice in the air, stabbing at your lungs when the sun fell. I, at the time, was sheriff of a small town that sat near the northern border, a town called Kendall. Started there around 1969, became sheriff in 73, but that's besides the point. I'm retired now and I've been for for a number of years, and often I get asked by friends or even my grandchildren to hear stories from those days of which I had plenty. What's the craziest thing you ever did as a cop? 
My granddaughter asked that one a lot. You ever been scared? Ever had to use your gun? Usually I tell these same few stories about the time that I was shot at, or the idiots who took me on chases up and down the highway. They're innocent enough for them, which makes me look like a hero and nobody ever really got hurt in the end. The truth is, the thing that always stuck with me was nothing like that. Nothing so simple as some thug with a pistol or a junked up teenager stealing a car. Something that profoundly moved me in a way that no man should ever be moved. It began one morning, a gray cloudy day when I arrived at the station to find a call had been left for us. It was from a young man named Jonathan, an Algonquin native, whose father I had known well some years back. He managed a small stable of horses that he would lend officers if we needed to mount up. Jonathan said something happened to one of the horses, but he didn't explain exactly what. Man said that he needed someone there as soon as possible. He sounded distressed, and there was something ominous to his voice. I loaded up and set off his way, about an hour out from the highway. He lived on reservation land, and my mind immediately ran to the thought of a recent tragedy. A group of hikers had gone to camp up in the reservation, all of whom were still missing all these weeks later. I agreed to go and meet with him and took off in the police pickup in case the terrain got hairy. He lived in a small home pushed up at the edge of the forest line and hidden away from the highway by a tall brush. My truck pushed its way up his dirt road and I arrived at the property. I had never been up this far before. Whenever we came to pick up a mount, they would always be waiting for us on the road. It was in a poor but stable condition and there was a dark green pickup truck parked at the bottom of a long steep hill. And I parked beside it. I could see these stables for the horses behind the home, but no signs of the horses themselves. It was a hand-built cabin with modern amenities presumably installed by the man's father years ago. I remember the old man well. He was quiet and spiritual, a man of tradition. Always showed respect to those around him and never started any trouble. He died some years back and I knew the boy took it hard. In fact, I believe the last time that I saw him was at the man's funeral. He'd be grown up now, I thought as I climbed the slope. I was near heaving by the time that I walked up to the rickety steps of the cabin. I rapped on the old cabin door. There was no answer. Suddenly, I began to intake a foul odor. It attacked my nose and caused me to recoil. I called out and received an answer from behind the house. I found him in a hole by the fields. And next to him, a desecrated corpse of one of his horses. Christ, I said. What the heck went on here? I found him like this, out by the forest. I don't know what happened. I didn't know the boy well, but I could sense an edge to his voice, as if he had been up for days. He took pieces of the horse and drug them into the hole and began to fill it. I grabbed his shovel and helped, saying nothing all the while. It looked to be some kind of bear that had gotten a hold of the poor animal, but he didn't seem to think so. There's something in these woods, Sheriff. Something out there watching the property. He spoke as if he had been waiting a long time to tell this story. I began to notice it a few weeks ago. I saw it standing still amongst the cedars. It 
I said. What is it? Some kind of bear? No, nothing like that. There's a spirit out there. I've seen it. I wasn't a believer of the stories and myths that the Algonquin often spoke of, but the look and sound of the young man was deeply concerning. Is everything alright, son? You look pale and sick. You need to sit down for a while. He didn't listen, and so I asked him where and when he found the horse. After I began to feel its presence, I stopped letting the horses free in the fields. I didn't want them anywhere near those trees. But he escaped in the middle of the night and I woke to him screaming. He was sweating profusely. I heard his pained cries echo in the darkness, and I heard something behind it. Some unholy rasp unlike the sound of any bear or predator in these woods. His wide-eyed expression added discomfort to an already off-putting story. I refused to go out in that darkness with that thing, and I waited until sunrise to go check its body, and I found it there in pieces across the lawn, bite marks all over it. He continued to tell me about the things he had seen. He described the weather growing cold, much colder than it already was, and he told me of the sight of something that resembled a tall man, sitting just out of view in the trees, how it would never move into the light and its inhuman cries that would call to him. They sounded like the ravings of a madman. Perhaps the isolation he had was getting to him. Perhaps he was using and in the middle of a bad binge. Anything I could think of to rationalize the situation. But the horse was a different story, a very real concern. Writing it off as a bear modeling would be easy, but I never knew one that would kill and lead the prey to rot in mangled pieces like this. It simply didn't match their behavior. He stopped talking suddenly, jerking his head back and looking to the tree line as if he had heard something. But there was no sound or sight to accompany the action. I asked him if he had gotten any sleep lately, and he admitted that it had been some time since he could rest for more than a couple of hours at a time. I grabbed the shaking man by his shoulder and led him to his door. You should try and get some sleep tonight, son, I said. Go into a hotel in town. It would do wonders for you. I can't. I can't leave my horses unattended with that thing out there. I offered instead a helping hand. I told him that I would come back before the sunset and stay with him overnight so he could rest his eyes as I watched over his stable. He and his father had been longtime friends to us and I figured it was the least that I could do. Some sleep would serve him well. He thought for some time before accepting the offer, perhaps only because he saw little other choice. I shook his hand and directed him inside, told him to sit tight and relax for the day and to call immediately if anything felt off again. So I set off back into my truck and headed on down to the station. I told my secretary about what I would be doing and requisitioned a shotgun. I didn't believe any monster stories, but anything capable of doing that to a horse could do worse to a man, and I decided not to take any chances. Before night began to fall, I went home and told the family what I would be doing. My wife immediately didn't take a liking to any of it. She begged me not to go, and the children looked at me terrified as they had been eavesdropping on the whole conversation. Convincing them took longer than I thought, and the sun was already mid-set by the time that I could finally head out. I got to the reservation as the last of the gray-faded, 
and began to exchange for a pitch darkness. The truck lights cut through the dark as I navigated the dry path and pulled into the small lot at the bottom of the hill. I felt something was wrong immediately. Jonathan's truck was nowhere to be found. I wrote it off. I figured it may be parked elsewhere, and if not then checking the property was the least I could do regardless. The outside of the home was lit dimly by an old oil lantern, and the inside had a faint glow of light emanating from the side windows, but this was not very reassuring. There was something gothic about the lighting, something off-putting, but I never let my nerves get the better of me. So I took my shotgun from the back and slung it over my shoulder and checked the revolver at my side just to get a feel. I grabbed my flashlight and began up the long hill. The walk felt like an eternity. The visibility was fading quickly and I lost sight of the tree line before I was even halfway up. It wasn't until I was in the darkness that I realized how much these stories had gotten to me. Every few steps I stopped and listened out into the dark but I received no feedback. I navigated by the oil light like some wise man following these stars in the vast desert, and eventually I arrived at the porch. I noticed the door ajar and I slung the shotgun around and held it in my arm, and cautiously stepped towards it. I called out for Jonathan, but I heard nothing. I pushed the door in further and began to step into the main room. It was covered in tribal decor and sparsely filled, an old animal hide blanket on some retro sofa, and a woven dreamcatcher placed above it. Suddenly, the horrific stench returned. It filled my nostrils and caused me to almost gag. It was much stronger now and smelled clearly of death, and I had to step back outside. I took a moment to recover and breathe. I pulled the shotgun up and stepped back in to comb the room. To my right was a small kitchen. The sink faucet was running lightly, and there was a cast iron pan with something charred inside. It was still warm. There were two rooms on either end of a small hallway adjoining the living room. I worked my way down, checking each room with great caution, but both were empty. The stench lingered about and unease set in. I thought for a moment and I remembered the horses. I ran out the back door and towards the stables. I shined my flashlight into the darkness to find that they were all empty, no trace of anything. The doors were either left open or broken off their hinges and it seemed the animals were long gone now. My heart was pounded and I was questioning whether to leave or even to call in backup. I was startled by the loud cry of an owl that was sitting atop the trestle of the stable, a grand white bird, or at least six pounds. It stared at me with cold eyes before it spreading its wings and taking off. The tree line was now eclipsing at the rising moon, and a dim gray hue fell over the property, increasing my visibility by just a few feet. I slowly began to circle the house, checking the outside and occasionally flashing my light out into the field. My flashlight was strong, but no matter where it shone, the light could not penetrate into the forest a black void lane just beyond the edge. I felt the temperature drop rapidly, a bone-chilling cold accompanied by a harsher wind. I buttoned my coat and continued on. I found a pair of cellar doors locked with a chain. One of them had a hole busted off from the inside, 
and what looked like a couple of bolt holes going in around it. I tried shining my light into the hole, but all I could see was a set of dirt-stained concrete stairs leading into more darkness. My fixation on it was interrupted by an odd sound, an unnatural rustle. I turned and shined the light back into the blackness, but there was nothing to greet me. I probed the light slowly across the trees, letting my eyes adjust and take in what I saw before moving along. The flashlight didn't seem to be much help. Its effectiveness waned about a hundred feet out and all light was sucked away as it met the forest. I stopped on an odd-looking thing, a thin gray tree that stood out from the rest. It looked dead, sitting amongst a patch of shrubbery. I had not noticed it when I was there earlier, and I studied it closely, or as best as I could. Immediately, something seemed off. It didn't look like anything that grew in this region, or any other region for that matter. It looked almost alien. Four sharp and malnourished branches bent and hung low to the ground, and its base was rigid and sunk in. Unlike the other plants that didn't seem affected by the wind, it stood eerily unmoved. I spent some time trying to match it to something familiar to me, but then it moved. It stood tall and turned, sprinting into the forest, moving with such an unearthly speed that it instantly became a blur and half a second later it was gone. I had no time to register what I had just seen. I jumped in shock and instinctively fired my gun. But it was gone well before the clatter of the buckshot reached the shrubbery. It was so sudden that for a moment I questioned if what I saw was even real. I had in my head only the remnants of some horrid face that briefly disgraced my vision. There were no details that registered. Only a feeling of dread that ran down my spine. My back against the house, shotgun still leveled on my shoulder scanning the forest. I didn't know what to do. Despite the tree line being about a hundred yards out, the speed in which it ran led me to believe it could close the distance before I could even react. I pressed myself against the cabin and began to slowly circle out, never taking my eyes off the forest. I could only walk a few feet before stopping and keeping a keen ear repeating again and again as I made my way around to the front of the cabin. After several painstaking minutes I arrived, I stepped over the railings onto the porch, limiting the directions the thing could come at me from. The brief moment I needed to turn to climb, I entered into a panic. I scuffled over the rail and quickly turned to scan the trees again. Nothing. I took a few deep breaths and pressed my back up to the wall again. Suddenly... I heard a ghostly howl that came in tandem with the wind, almost masked and carried by it. I couldn't tell what direction it came from. It cried again, and then silence. The cold was now unbearable, and I needed to make a break for my truck, which thankfully remained unperturbed at the bottom of the hill. I knew that I couldn't wait there forever. As shaken as I was, I needed to leave. I began my tactic again, walking to the base of the hill and listening. The ground was wet and slick. I had to go much slower than I would have liked to so I could avoid tumbling down. I was naked, completely surrounded by darkness and going off of nothing but hope. Most of the trip down was without incident, and I was finally near the bottom. Before I could lower my guard, I heard the howl again and it seemed close. 
I swung my weapon and light at where I thought the sound originated, and my heart sank when I saw a large pair of eyes staring directly at me. It was the large owl, sitting atop a tree and looking down at me intently. I took a sigh of relief but was interrupted when I heard rapid trampling from behind me followed by a loud bump against the metal of my truck. I turned again to find the vehicle swaying slightly. The creaking of its struts was the only sound now. I dropped to my knees, investigating under the vehicle. Nothing. I circled and checked the bed. Empty. I wasted no more time. Got into my car and turned the ignition. Part of me didn't believe it would turn on, but it did. I thanked God and began to reverse out. I took one last look at the house and the lights had gone out. But in the pale, yellow glow of my truck's lights, I thought that I could see it, watching me from the windows inside. But there was no way to be sure. My adrenaline wouldn't let me linger any longer, and I drove off as fast as I could out onto the highway and back towards home. The scene was something that would never leave my mind, but as unreal and as haunting as the night was, the discoveries made the next day have stuck with me far longer. I kept what I saw to myself. Part of me didn't even believe it, so I knew there would be little luck in explaining to others. I simply said Jonathan and his horses were nowhere to be found. John's green truck was found on the side of the highway about 10 miles south. It had careened off into a ditch and totaled. There was a dried blood on the dash and a stained bowie knife sat in the grass. Various articles of clothing were on the ground and two sets of tracks led into the forest one of them being barefoot. This had been enough to acquire a search warrant of Jonathan's property, so I, along with my deputies, went to investigate the property that afternoon. The house was untouched, nothing misplaced or unusual since the previous night. I made an effort to separate myself from the others for a moment, searching the grass to grab and pocket the shell that I had fired. My priority was to check those cellar doors and after cutting the chain and walking down, I had found the source of that awful stench. Scattered remains of bone with human teeth marks riddled all over them, blood-stained chains and cuffs nailed to the wall. My mind immediately jumped to the thought of the missing hikers, and my fears rang true as the only DNA that could be extracted matched with that of Sally Miller, one of the women who had disappeared. It was by far the most wretched thing that I had ever encountered in my work, and it's not one that anyone at the station likes to speak of. Jonathan was never found. What was left of him and his story ended with those tracks in those woods. I have only brought up the incident that night to my wife and a friend at the station. Martha was deeply concerned and she had no issues believing me. She was always extra cautious around the forest sense, never letting the children near it. And my longtime friend Bernard told me, it must have been some sickly, emaciated bear, and I never argued the point. I didn't know what I saw, but I know what I didn't see. I didn't see any creature of God sitting in those woods. The image of that mistaken tree has appeared in more than a few nightmares, and I never seem to get a clear picture whenever I think back on it. Not that I often try. I retired, never fully closing the book on the case, and in truth, part of me never really wanted to. Jonathan was long gone, and whatever answers there may be, I have no interest in knowing. Some things are best left unsaid, unanswered. 
The mythical evil that lay in those woods seemed to pale in comparison to the evils in the heart of what I believed was a good man. My grandfather took me to a cave in the middle of the night. I think something followed us. Written by Sci-Fi Writer 3592 I grew up in a small rural town in Mexico, so remote that time had rendered us as insignificant. Like everywhere out of the main cities, we struggled to remain afloat during the tough economic times. But the poverty that my family endured was much worse than the rest of the families around us. My family consisted of me living with my grandparents all alone in a wooden shack up in the hills of Oaxaca, tending to some crops and animals. My parents had left me as an infant in search of a better life but died somewhere along the way. That's what I was told. But I can't be for sure because they never found any bodies. Nor did I ever meet them. I would like to think that maybe they had found that life and were coming back to save us. I remember being so hungry that I would search the fields for hours looking for any fruits that I could eat. I would pick off the bugs that made their way into the yellow skins of the guavas and take a bite, before putting them in a basket hoping that they would last for days. I would brush my teeth with hand soap because we couldn't afford regular toothpaste. When I was 8 years old, I remember my grandmother falling sick. She complained about sudden chest pains and soreness in her arms. She would hunch over in agonizing pain and eventually... With my grandfather's help, we were able to take her to the local clinic, where they told us that if we were there any second later, she would have died. She was diagnosed with a congestive heart failure, which meant that her heart was not functioning properly. Life expectancy can range from 5 to 10 years depending on lifestyle changes, medication, and genetics. Getting a heart transplant was out of the question, because they said she was too old. I remember my grandfather in distress as we waited outside of the clinic, thinking about ways to get some money. Hey, mijo, I don't know what we're going to do. We could barely afford to feed and clothe ourselves, and now we have to pay for your grandmother's medications. My grandfather would cry out while praying silently. A couple days later, we were sent back home taking my grandmother with us. She was hanging on by a thread. Lying in bed sleeping in complete contrast to her energetic, cheerful self. Late one night, my grandfather woke me up and ushered me to take a walk with him. I remember it being so late that even the animals were asleep. Shh, it's just me. Don't wake your grandmother up. Come with me. I need to do something and I can't do it alone. My grandfather shook me gently while lighting up an oil lamp. I grabbed my shoes on and started following him inside. We started walking to the side of the shack where the animals were all cooped up. I was so groggy that I was barely registering the fact that he was carrying a machete and a wooden cage. What's that for? I asked curious as to what he was doing in the middle of the night. There were barely any animals in this area, and this was not the right season either. He stopped for a minute, facing my direction for a solid minute before speaking. I need you to be silent on what we're going to do tonight. No matter what you hear or see, you cannot speak about this with anyone. Do you understand? The light of the fire in the lamp casted a shadow on his face, and I could see the pupils of his eyes boring a hole into my soul. 
I didn't know what the hell was going to happen, but the fact that I never saw him this serious before had unnerved me. I understand. I nodded in utter silence. He grabbed a white chicken, which fought back with what little it could, but it proved futile as it went into the cage. He then stuck the cage into my hands and I trailed after him. We started taking off into the darkness of the night, having only the small light of our lamp as a guide, which seemed useless to me as it all looked the same, but somehow my grandfather seemed to know where to go. It must have been a two-hour walk, but it felt like forever before we had reached it. A pitch-black entrance in the middle of the side of a rocky wall surrounded by dead trees. It was as if there were a sudden line where everything just decided to die altogether. The hairs on my neck had started to stand straight up as if a warning that we were not meant to be here. I wanted to turn away and run, but my grandfather didn't seem to care. He merely continued on into the entrance which was blacker than anything I've ever seen. We didn't stray too far into the cave, however, merely staying in the area between the entrance and the darkness. He motioned for me to set the cage down and leaned into my ear. Once I do it, we will walk back home, and you will not look back no matter what you hear. Do you understand? His voice had not quivered, yet remained a little above a whisper. I merely nodded and he opened the cage and grabbed the poor bird, which started fighting even more than before. He motioned me to grab it and I was so afraid of dropping it that I held on to it tighter than I should have. It tried pecking at my arms and struggling out. Its little chunky frail body was trembling, and its legs kicked as it tried to free itself. But that struggle ended abruptly as my grandfather put the machete around its neck, and with one swift motion, I felt its body go limp. I had to turn away when he did that, but when I felt the warm, thick liquid run down my hands, I felt completely disgusted. I witnessed my grandparents kill and clean out a chicken before, but this wasn't for culinary purposes. What the heck was this all for? He grabbed the chicken's body with both hands and threw it as far as he could into the darkness of the cavern, before grabbing my arm and pulling me towards the entrance of the cavern. It was as if a gust of wind had come out of the cavern a disgusting, warm, foul breeze that had exited from behind us, so strong that it almost blew my grandfather's sombrero from his head. The smell was so vile that I had trouble keeping a still face, and it took everything from me not to gag or throw up. And that's when I heard it. It was the sound of a horse neighing from behind us in the distance. At first I thought it was my imagination, but it wasn't until I heard the click-clack of its hooves that I realized it was real. There was an actual horse in the cave coming out towards us, but there was something malignant about it. There was another noise coming from it, like the sound of metallic chains being dragged across the floor of the cave. As frightening as it was, the noise was alluring. It was begging me to take one look at the source of the sound. I think my grandfather could tell because he put his hand on the back of my head and we kept marching forward. I'm not sure how long we were in there because by the time we had reached through the line of the dead trees, we could see that it was dusk. The sounds of the chains and the clacking of the hooves had started to dissipate, but my fear was still gripping at me. Eventually, we reached home and without a word, we both went to bed. A couple of hours later, I awoke to the smell of sizzling eggs with ham and other vegetables added. I looked around and saw that my grandfather was still sleeping 
I got up and checked outside in the kitchen area to see my grandmother laughing around to the radio while cooking away. She looked completely healthy. I stared in confusion before she spoke. Miho, you're awake. Harry, come and eat because your eggs are getting cold. She replied while putting some food onto a plate. You're feeling better. Did you take your medication? I asked in confusion. How was this possible? Yesterday I thought she was dying and now here she is like nothing had ever happened. Oh, Miho, it was a miracle. I prayed and prayed and the Santa Maria delivered. I woke up completely fine and healthy. I feel like I could dance away my worries. She swayed her hips and patted my shoulder. I merely sat down and pondered as to what happened. What was that thing in the cave? Did it have something to do with my grandmother making a miraculous recovery? My thoughts were interrupted by a sudden hand on my shoulder. It was my grandfather making his way to take a seat on the kitchen table. Morning, Miho. Did you sleep all right? He took a sip of the coffee before him while suddenly raising his eyebrow as if to make sure that I followed his lead. I merely nodded and raised another eyebrow in confusion. I just wanted answers. My grandmother walked out to throw some seeds at the chickens which were clucking restless in the distance. Grandpa, what happened la- He shook his head rapidly as if to avoid someone catching us. We don't talk about Mio. What happened last night is in the past. Now you forget about it and move on. I did what I had to. His voice was soft and it carried such a heavy burden, like he was trying to reassure himself more than me. I merely nodded and continued eating. The rest of the day carried on like normal. I went about feeding the animals random seeds here and there while listening to the radio. Its static kept interrupting the random news that pop up, keeping my only source of education very limited. For an eight-year-old, I was very curious about the world and everything around me. Almost too curious. According to my grandmother, who would try to answer my questions as best as she could. But her little education would be covered up with words of wisdom that she had obtained from the Bible that was once read to her when she was younger. My grandfather was set to go into town that weekend, but decided to go in a couple days earlier than usual. Like often, I was supposed to go along with him to help him bring back any supplies, but this time, he decided to go by himself. As strange as it was, I didn't put up a fight because I wanted to play with a couple of the dogs that started showing up. When he arrived that night, he showed up in a brand new truck loaded with a bunch of supplies. My grandmother was just as surprised as I was, and she put her arms on my shoulders before badgering him with questions. Antonio... Where did this truck come from? How did you get all of this? Miho, help bring all the supplies in. There's also a bunch of toys back there. I have to talk to your grandmother. He waved me off while he started walking towards her while holding a stack of papers. I ran over to the back of the truck and there was a ton of different fruits, vegetables, and all sorts of toys. Soccer balls, baseball bats, and even brand new shoes. I wanted to show my grandparents, but I stopped when I saw my grandmother tear up. They really sent all this money. They're alive. I, Mia, it's still alive. We need to give thanks to the Virgin Mary that they made it. I think they were talking about my parents. I wanted to ask, but something held me back. I could tell when my grandfather lied. He would look off to the side and take a deep breath. And he was doing the exact same thing here. That night, we had a feast and I played with my brand new toys. 
That first batch of money was merely the start of a trickle and pretty soon, we had enough money to build an entire hacienda, which was a large plantation common among the rich. My parents would only send us some letters and a big check, but they never sent any pictures, nor did they ask about us. They just told us about how what they would do, how hot the weather was where they lived, and to take care of ourselves. Eventually, years went by and they sent me off to boarding school, so I could obtain the best education that they could afford. It was a tough decision, but I maintained contact with my grandparents. I never got to meet my actual parents because every time I would ask, they would never reply to our letters. My grandmother eventually got over the way that they treated us because of the money made up for it. And that brings me to the present. I'm currently 21 years old and I'm finishing up my last year of university when I got a call that my grandfather was on his deathbed. It was his time to go. I hopped on the first flight to Mexico that I could find and made my way back to our hometown. After a couple of days of traveling, I reached the driveway of my grandparents' hacienda. It was bigger and more beautiful than I'd remembered. Its glorious architecture was colored in a light shade of beige and tall columns lined up the sides of the walls of the western and eastern wings. There was a large fountain in the middle of the front entrance that sparkled with lights of various colors of the ocean. It was anything anyone could ever dream of. Mio, I am so glad you're here. Your grandfather was asking about you a couple of days earlier, but he's asleep now. He's not lucid and the medications have him asleep. I think he's getting close. She wept as she brought me to his room, which was filled with various medical equipment, breaking away any silence with its beeping. I'll leave you two alone. I'll be right out here if you need anything. I nodded but gave her one big hug before she left. I stayed on the side of his bed just talking to him through the night, saying everything that I wanted him to hear. I told him that I was so proud to have him as my father, the man who raised me and taught me to be as compassionate as he was. Eventually, it was getting late, and my grandmother ushered me to go to bed because we had to go into a town that morning to visit our priest in preparation for the services. It must have been around midnight when something woke me up. It was the sound of the dogs crying out in the distance, whimpering and shrieking and making sounds that I've never heard of before. But it wasn't those sounds that sent chills down my spine. It was the sound of horses click-clacking away, dragging chains around. The sound was right outside my bedroom door. I thought I was dreaming, but I tried turning on the lamp besides my bed only for the light to surge and the bulb exploded, leaving shattered glass everywhere. I jumped out of bed and ran to my door, throwing it wide open only to reveal that nothing was there. I ran to my grandfather's room, throwing that door open and rushing in, but nothing was there either. It was just the two of us in that room, with him still sleeping and the machines beeping along. It was so loud. I expected my grandmother to come barging in, but she didn't. But then I heard it again. The sound of the click-clacks of the hooves, and I looked out the window to see a hooded figure on a tall black horse with rusted metal chains on its legs. I couldn't make out a face, but the appearance made my heart race, but somehow I couldn't move. It was as if I was in a trance just staring into the horse's red eyes, hoping that they wouldn't break through. 
Eventually, the figure grabbed one of the chains and threw it through the glass, shattering it into a million little shards. The chain wrapped around my arm and it tried pulling me out into the night. I tried fighting back with all my might and I grabbed onto a nearby table and stuck my foot into the edge of the desk, preventing me from going any further. It grabbed another chain and threw it at my grandfather's direction, wrapping around his left foot and it quickly dragged him out of bed, ripping away all the wires that were connected to him. I tried to scream but I couldn't make a sound because I was running out of breath trying to struggle against the chains which were digging into my skin. It eventually dragged my grandfather out through the window, and just as I was losing all my force and falling forward, I felt a sudden pressure on my arms. Mio, wake up. Your grandfather passed away last night. My grandmother shook me away in complete hysterics. I was drenched in complete sweat, but I still got up and ran into my grandfather's room, seeing that the room was completely clean. The machines were quiet and my grandfather laying motionless in the bed. He almost looked peaceful. I tried to shake off the feeling that something was wrong, but as I moved closer, I saw bruises around his left foot, like something had been wrapped around it. I looked down at my arm to see that it was completely purple with specks of blood trickling out from the inflamed areas. I couldn't exactly tell my grandmother about everything that had happened, but I spent all day at church begging for salvation. I tried to sleep it off and rationalize it, but as night grows closer, I can hear the soft neighs of the horse in the distance. I'm just so freaking scared. Do you think it's coming for me? In an old railway tunnel in the south, there are people that live upside down. Written by Rick the Intern Have you ever heard of the Upside Down Folk? I hadn't. It was an urban legend that I thought my college friend had probably made up. But seeing as how I was a film student and the town that legend was supposed to be from was roughly between my college campus and my parents' home another state away. I couldn't pass up on the opportunity to stop there. With a camera, of course. I had been meaning to make a little ham-hand documentary of some creepy little urban legend or other. By the way, do you still call it an urban legend if it's in a rural area? I guess you would just call it a folktale. Although that term doesn't really seem to fit. I don't know for sure if it was in my friend's hometown. When I pressed him about it, he laughed nervously said things like, why does it matter? That made me think that it did matter, but I got nowhere when I kept pressing him. Other than him saying that he had some friends from high school who had talked a lot about the Upside Down folk and how everyone around town knew about it. And other than what he told me about how the Upside Down folk supposedly lived upside down in an old railway tunnel and sometimes abducted people. Anyway, the summer of my junior year in college was when I stopped in that little southern town with my film equipment. I can tell you that I was attending the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, but I will not tell you the name of that town in Alabama. My friend sure told me its name and how to get there. This was definitely a little town, population probably in the low hundreds. If my friend had gone to high school there, he might have been able to count his graduating class on his hands. 
The people were friendly enough, or seemed friendly enough. Having grown up in the South myself, I knew that there was a difference between real Southern hospitality and the fake kind. But those people in that town, I couldn't tell which one it was. After exiting the highway, I went down some heavily wooded county roads before being deposited into an old-timey downtown-looking area. You know the kind. It has the old wooden buildings squeezed together. Post office, liquor store, drugstore, grocery store, and the like. A town hall made of brick loomed over and beyond these smaller wooden buildings. A family sold boiled peanuts, watermelons, and deer jerky outside a ramshackle sheriff's station. I saw a tall, thin building without a sign that I hoped was a motel, for my convenience. I had never seen any sign with the town's name on it. Maybe that was on another way in, or else I had missed it. But I knew that this had to be the town for my friend's directions. You guys don't happen to have any gift shops dedicated to the upside-down folk, do you? I said to the clerk at the drugstore. I've heard they got something like that up in Point Pleasant in West Virginia, uh, for the Mothman. Do what now? The clerk said. He was an old man whose skin was tight and red from days and days in the sun. So tight and beat red that you could barely make out the wrinkles on it. I'm a film student at the University of Alabama, I said. I want to make a little documentary about your urban legend, or a folktale or whatever you want to call it. The Upside Down Folk. You're gonna have to speak up, son. My hearing ain't too good. The Upside Down Folk. I didn't realize that I was nearly shouting until it came out of my mouth. The clerk's face spasmed, became looser like a tight ball of yarn beginning to unspool. Behind me, a couple of people, it was a mother and her son, stopped their rustling around on some shelves and they stopped their polite whispering. They got us still and quiet. That's one of them kids' things, the old drugstore clerk said. That's something those youngins like to talk about. You're gonna have to ask them. Or don't ask them. Me, I'm a grown-ass man. Whereas before, his expression had been all genial, even when he hadn't seemed to have heard me. After that, it became as cross as a priest chastising someone in a church. Oh, I said, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. You can find the upside down folk, said a voice behind me. Past redacted, just a ways northwest of redacted in the woods. But it ain't exactly all woods. Mister, you'll see some. I turned around after the voice had been cut off. The mother was covering her son's mouth on the aisle that they had been shopping in. She looked scared. The son seemed to be in his early teens, maybe in middle school or junior high. Thank you, I said. The mother shook her head at me. I bought a few snacks in there as a thick, guilty sort of silence hung over everything. When I waved goodbye to those three in the drugstore, no one returned my wave. But the minute that I stepped into the signless, taller building a few buildings down, I was serenaded with a how are ya, welcome to the such and such and just the friendliest voices you could imagine, face-splitting grins, laughing at everything that I said. You guys really ought to have a sign out front, I said at one point. It's probably bad for business. In other contexts, that might have upset some people off by telling them how to run their business. 
but the motel clerk, the handyman, and the motel owner laughed their butts off at that. They were all at the front and eager to please anyone who walked through the door. The motel owner, the older woman who seemed dressed up for a ball, kept calling me golden boy after I told her that I was studying film in college and looking to shoot a documentary there. I bit my tongue when I almost mentioned the upside down folk. They did not ask what the documentary in their town would be about. Crap, I thought. I should have been filming in the drugstore earlier. That would have been great. After I rented a room, I got my suitcase and gear out of my car, went upstairs and unloaded it in a small but clean and antiquely finished room. And then I took my camera equipment out. No tripod. Just a mic and a camera on my shoulder. I thought it might be grittier if I didn't use a tripod. I worked myself up, set a few lines into the microphone, and went downstairs. I lowered the camera when I got to the front desk. Okay if I ask you a few things for the documentary. I said to the clerk, a young woman who seemed about my age. The hotel manager owner who was seeming more and more like her grandmother or something leaned out from the side room. Sure, darling, she said, speaking for the younger woman. We don't mind. Not for you, golden boy. I waited for the younger woman to nod. Okay, I said. I did some lead-up questions, as you do for interviews. I can't very well jump into the controversial ones at the start. The young woman, her name was Bethany Ann, was shy but very nice. And once she had opened up, she had a lot to say about their motel business about how and where she had grown up, about where she had gone to school, and about her dreams of going to college herself at some point once they had saved up enough money. She wanted to do something business-related to help her mother. Apparently, her mother had been pretty old when she had had her. Her father had died from alcoholism and possession. Possession, I said. You mean of drugs? You mean he got in trouble with the law for possession of drugs? No, she said. A devil got inside him. Oh, I said. I let out an uneasy breath. A devil got inside me, she said. But I shook it loose. Her mother was next to her, nodding affirmation. Okay, I said, thinking to myself. Even if these people are acting, this is going to be gold. I took a moment to double check to make sure that I had been recording and I hadn't even gone to the upside-down folk yet. Now, I just want to stop right here and say that I grew up in a small southern city myself. The last thing that I want to do is perpetuate some unfortunate stereotypes of southern people. We're not all crazy. Behind the times, rednecks who think that every other ailment is related to something spiritual. And I don't think many of those people in that town were that way either. That young woman that I talked to conducted herself as intelligently as many of my college peers did, and she seemed to have more ambition than a lot of them to boot. So, when I mentioned the upside-down folk to them, the mother did something weird. Instead of covering her daughter's mouth, as the mother in the drugstore had done with her son to shut him off, this woman rushed over and put her hands over both of her daughter's ears. The grandmother, I mean mother, and proprietor of the motel, struck me as the kind of person who liked to nod a lot when others were talking, in affirmation and interest, or just to let you know that she was listening, 
Now, she was nodding furiously. Even our smiles said otherwise. You let us know if you need anything, she said. Okay, I just wanted to get a little more for the... We gotta get back to business now, she said. The drawl in her tone sweet, but sweet like rotten molasses. It got to be evening not long after I had settled in. I kicked my feet up on the desk beside the bed and sighted the wall where I thought a TV should be. Someone knocked at my door. It was the handyman, and he had a bowl full of what appeared to be chicken, vegetables, and dumplings in a thick white sauce, toast on the side, a bottle of soda with its metal cap beside it. Cool vapor smoked out of the top of the bottle. It all looked and smelled very good. I never ordered room service, I said. It must be for someone else. Well, there's no one else here, he said, and we ordinarily don't have room service anyways. All right, I said, I'll take it. How much do I owe you? Not in the house, he said. He gave me a meaty smile. Let me know if that's enough. I can make something more for you if you want it. As I walked off with the tray, I noticed the handyman lingering. I quickly set the tray down on the desk and began fishing my wallet out for a tip. Oh, don't bother, he said. I was just going to say, about the upside-down folk. I overheard you talking about them to the ladies. Wait, I thought. I don't even have my camera out. Hold that thought, I started to say, as I moved towards my camera case. I just wanted to tell you to not mention that to them again, to the ladies. You do that one thing and we'll be right as rain. You do that one thing and I'll fix your breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I lifted my hand from the camera case's zipper. Um, I said, okay. That night, as I lay in bed streaming some old Nick and Knight episodes on my phone, I thought about the two brief directions that the boy in the drugstore had given me before he had been cut off by his mother. I decided that the next day, I would just have to try and find that place where the upside down folk were said to be. Said to be by that kid anyway. I would take a camera down there and see for myself. If anything, I might get some rustic footage of scenery that's appealing for the documentary. After that, maybe I would get back to questioning people around town. The next day, I would just dive on into the deep end, as they say. Try to swim straight to the source. I didn't know then just how deep that was going to get. There was a tunnel... As I started to drift off to sleep, another knock at the door. At first, I thought I was dreaming it. I got up, heart pounding too hard for that to be a dream. Maybe the knock had been. But then I opened the door. There was a blank envelope. I thought that I heard movement on the stairs. Shadows in the dim hallway. Only shadows. What could this envelope be about? I picked it up. Inside, a short letter, handwritten. Don't, but if you must, it's vitally important that you finish their song. They will sing as they come towards you in the tunnel. Finish their songs with, Oh ho, dirt to toe, the right side up folk we be. Otherwise, your life will be theirs. I looked around again before taking the letter back inside with me. I quickly shut and locked my motel room door. I couldn't understand. 
Was I being pranked or was this a legitimate effort to help me? Was it some kind of threat? And what was all that about singing? My college friend had neglected to mention that part. And I was neglecting to film any of this. I put the letter down on the desk, shone a lamp on it, and with shaking hands, I got out my camera. As I filmed the short, unsigned letter, I did my best to summarize what had just happened. I didn't know about all that singing business. What I did know was that, the next day, I would have to be on my guard. I was planning on getting a late start the following day. I did not sleep well. I don't know how much of that was because of the anonymous letter about the upside down folk, or because of already feeling unsettled prior to that. My plans for a late start were shattered though, when I got another knock at about 7am that morning. Needless to say, that woke me up pretty quickly. I opened the door to the handyman who was bearing another tray of food, eggs, bacon, cheese grits and a stack of pancakes with a hearty coating of maple syrup and butter. A cup of milk, a cup of orange juice, and a bottle of water were on the side. Breakfast. The handyman grunted at me. He wore a big smile. Though there was nothing about him to remind me of his request last night to not speak of the upside down folk to the motel owner and her daughter again, the request was implied by the tray of food. He said that he would fix breakfast, lunch, and dinner for me. He said he would do that and that we would be okay as long as I didn't speak of the upside down folk again to the others. So here was breakfast. I remember wondering if I could talk to him about the upside down folk, if that would be okay. I was also on the verge of asking him about the letter that someone had delivered the previous night after knocking. As I opened my mouth, his smile slipped just a tad. That threw me off. At any rate, I accepted the breakfast. I told him that it looked great and that last night's dinner was excellent, and that I would be okay if they decided to add it to my credit card. I'm happy you liked it, he said. It's still on the house, he winked. Hope you enjoy that one too. I take a special pride in my breakfast. First meal of the day is the most important. Then the handyman turned and went back down the hallway towards the stairs. Wait, I called after him. He stopped, but he did not turn back around. Did you guys get any late night visitors last night? I said. There is a pause. I'm not at liberty to discuss that, he said. We respect the privacy of all our patrons. Well, I said, maybe it wasn't a patron. Maybe it was just someone who had stopped by. You see, I got a letter. That sounds interesting, the handyman said, but I gotta go check on a room that's been leaking. Sorry. Before I could say another word, he went around the corner and was heading downstairs. Once again, I had missed an opportunity to get some potentially intriguing footage for my little upside-down folk documentary. I thought I probably should have my camera ready for any knock at the door, but I would be leaving soon anyway for my day's adventures. Adventure is not the right word for what ended up happening that day, but that's the way I thought of it then. I quickly ate breakfast, which, despite the runniness of the eggs that was not my preference, was as good as it looked and smelled. Then I got my gear ready. 
On top of my camera, I went ahead and mounted a special flashlight that I had brought. According to the legend, there was supposed to be in an old train tunnel that the upside down folk lived in. I didn't want to miss a shot of some scratches on the ceiling or something because I hadn't been able to see well enough. I would have waited until I got closer to set all that up, but I was planning to shoot everything I could on the way up there. So, I put my camera on my shoulder, turned on record, and left my motel room. I was mulling over whether or not I should try to ask the motel clerk or her mother some questions before I left, while being careful not to mention the upside-down folk. But when I went downstairs, they weren't at the front desk. They didn't seem like the kind of people that would leave their post, even though they weren't exactly busy. I heard some commotion in the side room behind the desk, so I figured they would step away. When I began to wonder if maybe they had stepped away because they had heard me coming down the stairs. I filmed their absence and once outside the motel, I also filmed some passerby. Figured if anyone complained, I would stop. I tried to ask two middle-aged women walking towards the grocery store if they were okay for a brief interview. They just said, good morning, smiled at me and kept walking. Another woman was dragging along her two kids and they stared at me. Did the whole town, as little as it was, have some kind of group text going? Had they been talking about me? Well, I had not planned on interviewing anyone else before I went to the supposed source anyway. So I just got in my car with the brief directions that other kid in the drugstore had given me. He hadn't told me which direction the first street he had mentioned was in but I pretty quickly figured it out with the phones and GPS. Going west, I left the motel, drug and grocery stores, the sheriff's station, and all the other buildings in that old-timey town center behind. I quickly passed the first street that the boy in the drugstore had said I would. On the next road he mentioned, I supposed I was meant to take a left or a right. I ended up taking a right because he had said something about going northwest off at the second street. All that time, I was passing homes of some of the townspeople. Everything from trailer homes to cottages and ranch-style houses. I saw a field of cotton and a few cows peering at my car from behind a rusted, barbed wire fence. The road that I had taken a right on eventually dead-ended. Large-bladed grass and vine-clad trees formed an almost barrier around the dead end. I say almost a barrier because I could see a path through on the right a little walking path of many feet having trotted down. And already through this window in the vegetation, I glimpsed the ruins of an old building beyond. I parked my car in the grass just past the dead end. I got out, put my camera on my shoulder and put that sucker on record. Time for that rustic scenery, I thought. Beyond the dead end, there were abandoned buildings and shacks poking out of trees and undergrowth. Thick vines and weeds sometimes grew out of open doorways, and windows like internal organs coming out of mouths. The further I went, the more it became apparent that this had all been either an older abandoned sector of the town, or else its own town. Who had been living here and why had they just abandoned it? Had they been the ancestors of those I had seen, or another people entirely? Rust and decay were everywhere and the vegetation of the woods busted and broke those buildings where possible. After about an hour of wandering through those ruins, I spotted a railway running through the high grass. 
When I followed that railway, I saw it. A long structure that extended into the woods, disappearing behind thicker growth. The tunnel. I had been filming everything I could. By then, I began to worry that my camera would slip out of my sweating, shaking hands. I remember pausing to put my camera down, wipe my sweaty hands on my shirt and rest for a minute. But then I put my camera back on my shoulder and stepped onto the old railway. From there, I could easily see the dark mouth of the tunnel. I filmed all the way up to it, talking all the while. I'm not sure how much of that was for dramatic effect for the documentary, or just to calm my nerves. But it quickly became apparent as I got closer that there was no light at the end of that tunnel. Just before entering that railway tunnel, I stopped at its outer edges. The old stone was cracked in places, but none of it appeared to have crumbled, at least not near the front of it. Why couldn't I see the light from the opening on its other end? Had there been a cave-in further down? Or had the woods on the other side completely or nearly completely obscured the light? Maybe, I thought. The tunnel curves farther ahead. I switched on the flashlight that I had mounted on my camera and shined it into the tunnel. I didn't see any spiderwebs or rats or anything moving about, but that tunnel went much further than my light could penetrate. I stepped inside. The ground was wet and soft. When I shined my light over the bottom of the tunnel, there seemed to be a layer of detritus of dead leaves and perhaps other dead things. It seemed to be yellowish-red, and it even covered the railway tracks themselves. Won't be any trains coming anytime soon, I joked aloud. It didn't take long for me to wish that I had not spoken in that tunnel. My voice echoed around until it no longer seemed to belong to me. I walked for a long time, painting the ceiling and walls with my camera-mounted flashlight, recording everything I pointed at my camera at. I did see scratches, and I saw indentations on the ceiling that looked like the footprints or claw prints of some large animals. That almost made me turn back. But in the name of my little documentary and the creepy footage I thought that I was getting, I persisted. I kept telling myself that the tunnel would curve and that then I would begin to see the light. I kept looking back at the way behind me, sometimes because I thought I had heard something other than my own movement and I kept noticing how that circle of light was receding. I got to the point that I wondered if railway tunnels were supposed to be this long. Maybe I was going under a hill or something. I had been walking in that tunnel for maybe 45 minutes to an hour when I had first heard it. Something was moving up ahead, beyond the beam of my light. Tentative at first, a little scattered, but then a bit more organized. It was also about that time that I saw a hole in the upper wall. I shined my light into it. It was a large burrow. I could see a little into that burrow, and within there, there was a couch hanging upside down, as if nailed or glued to the ceiling. I cursed under my breath. I started to go back, walking so as to not attract attention. But then I heard the singing. It began low, as an echoing whisper. I started walking more quickly back towards the railway tunnel entrance. More voices joined in, and the volume grew. I can't recall all the lyrics, but I can tell you that what they sang had to do with making other things upside down, 
At one point, they even sang about dismembering a human body and rearranging its parts so that it could move more easily upside down. As the volume increased, so did the number of voices. It struck me how quickly they were gaining volume, until I understood them to be running towards me as they sang. I turned around and I saw them, and filmed them. I did not see all of them before turning back around, only a bunch of pairs of gangly limbs hanging down. Those arms were freakishly long, long enough to reach towards the bottom of the railway tunnel. They were all moving together, like some kind of upside-down train. That's when I started running. My camera, still in record, bounced along on my shoulder. The singing intensified. The closer they got, the more I realized something I had been trying to avoid thinking about. The closer they got, the more those voices sounded less and less human. I also realized that I could not run fast enough to get away. They would overtake me. And those arms. That note that I had gotten, I berated myself for not bringing it. Even though I doubted I would have enough time to stop and reread it. What was I supposed to sing back to them? The singing got so close that I was becoming too frantic, so much so that I was not paying attention. One of my feet snagged in the old rails beneath the detritus. My camera flew out of my hands and off my shoulder. I fell on my face, tasting the awful, mysterious rot on the floor of the tunnel. They were just above, like a crowd or horde of people suddenly stopped. I thought I could feel a long fingernail of one of those dangling arms scratching the back of my neck. Even though they were way up there in the ceiling and I was face down at the bottom of the tunnel. Then, in voices that by now were so inhuman that they were like knives cutting away the strands of my nervous system. They sang. Hi ho, diddly ho, the upside down folk we be. How toe and answer below. Who, pray tell, are thee? I remembered from that note that I had gotten that this would not be the final line. The final line of their song. I did not know what that meant for me, but I had some theories. I was supposed to sing something back, or else. Oftentimes, fear makes us forget things, but I think it must have helped me recall the lines that I had read the previous night. I twisted around onto my back, I did not open my eyes. I heard a kind of chuckling from one of the things above me. I was on the verge of tears as I sang. Oh ho, dirt to toe, the right side up folk we be. The chuckling continued from a voice above. Something touched my forehead. Please, I said, please. And then there was like a breath or a collection of brass that ran through the tunnel. It stirred my hair around. It was so rancid that I stopped breathing out of my nose. Eventually, I opened my eyes. Whatever it was that had been pursuing me and then was above me, they were gone. I retrieved my camera, finding it to still be on and recording, and hauled tail out of that railway tunnel. I sprinted all the way back through the wooded ruins of that old abandoned town. I only paused to suck in oxygen. Even after I got in my car and ripped up dirt and grass to get back in the street, I kept peering in my mirror as I drove. While I did not linger in the still populated and running downtown area, 
and I did stop by long enough to check out of the motel and file a report at the sheriff's. I was curt with Bethany Ann and her mother at the front desk when I checked out. At the sheriff's, I gave some BS report about how I had been chased in the tunnel by some dangerous looking people. I just wanted someone to go down there and check it out. A shriveled old man whose badge seemed to take up half his chest blinked at me with hollow looking eyes. We get reports about that place all the time, he said. Best to stay clear of Old Town and its train tunnel. That was as much as I got from the sheriff in response, but I didn't hang around to get more information about those other reports. I was eager to leave that town, and the other town with its train tunnel next to it, behind. At my parents' home during my summer break, directly after all that happened, I got all wishy-washy about the documentary. Without reviewing it, I downloaded all the footage that I had taken to my computer, and then I deleted it, and then I restored it from my recycle bin. I slept on it uneasily, before deciding to permanently delete it. But not long after that, I noticed it was still on my computer. The footage, footage that might include the upside-down folk themselves, was for some reason or other difficult to get rid of. I left it there for the time being, while still not having the courage to review it just yet. And then something else happened. I had never sleepwalked before but one night about a week after I had visited that town, I woke up sitting in the driver's side of my vehicle, parked outside of my parents' house. My keys were in my pocket. I woke up thinking about that tunnel and the upside-down folk. What if I had tried to drive back out there, even though I didn't want to? What if I went into the tunnel again, but this time didn't sing the words that I was supposed to, because I was too afraid, or because... After that, I permanently deleted the footage on my computer, and I sold that computer towards buying a new one. I spent the following days making myself as busy as possible, so that I would not think of the upside-down folk. By the end of that summer, I was feeling better about things, and I was even wishing that I had kept my footage. As for my college friend, the one who had first told me about the upside-down folk... I was able to reach him by phone that summer or afterwards. The following semester, I couldn't find him on campus. When I searched the student directories, I got nothing, and he never had been on social media to begin with. Never watch a video called Nighttime Exploration, written by Tales from the Coffin. I found this written on a sheet of yellow notebook paper on the floor when I moved into my new house. My landlord informed me that the previous homeowner went missing under mysterious circumstances six months before I had bought the house. I'm posting this here as a reminder to always be careful online. Sometimes following your recommendations can take you to weird places. After finishing my shift late Saturday night, all I felt like doing was collapsing on my bed and watching some YouTube while I fell asleep. As soon as I got home, I slammed the door shut and tumbled into my bed. My eyes were almost closed as I unlocked my phone and picked out a random video on my recommended page. The video was by some channel that I had never heard of, 
and was some sort of pulp fiction narration or creepypasta reading. I'm not usually the one for creepy stories. I much prefer watching more lighthearted videos in my free time. But on this occasion, it didn't really matter what I was watching, since I was so out of it already. I'm not really sure why, but it just feels wrong to sleep without noise in the background. Ever since I was a kid, I've always had some sort of sound going while I slept. When I was three, my parents bought me a white noise machine, and I used that up until I got my first cell phone. If the noise stops or gets too quiet, I wake up. I've never known why, that's just the way that I am. Anyway, I always have autoplay on so the sound doesn't stop for too long. I guess it doesn't really matter what ends up playing, since I'm not really watching it, but it's a funny thought. What kinds of videos play while I sleep? What if the audio enters into my mind and implants dark, subliminal thoughts in the night? Maybe I'm just being paranoid about that, but whatever happened mere minutes ago has me shaking. It's the reason I'm typing this out now, scrunched up behind my bed's headboard. At some point in the night, I woke up. It must have been around 1.30 in the morning. I noticed that I could barely hear the video which must have been the reason my sleep ended so abruptly. I groggily opened my eyes and sat up. I saw the dim light of my phone screen shining up from the floor beneath. I groaned and picked it up off the ground and saw the video that I was on. It was a video with zero views. I wondered how many videos it took for me to get here. The first video I had clicked on had about a hundred thousand views. The video title was Nighttime Exploration. The description consisted of only one word. Hey. Confused, I tapped on the screen. That's when I noticed that something was wrong with the video. I could see the amount of time that I had already watched but not how much was left. I don't even watch it for 9 seconds, but I had no idea how long the full video was. At first, I wondered if I was actually watching a live stream, but thoroughly examining the description and everything around the video, I found there was no indication of this being live. I decided to watch it because I was awake by now and fairly intrigued. I had to stare at my screen for a few seconds before I realized what I was looking at. The camera was pointing at a door. More specifically, it was pointing at the doorknob. The video was oddly silent. I had to crank up the volume to the maximum to hear anything at all. What I heard was breathing. The breathing was presumably that of the cameraman. It was scratchy and deep and sounded uneven, like he had run several miles to get to the door. I almost skipped the next video on my recommended, 
when I saw nothing was happening. But right as my thumb was hovering over the next thumbnail, I noticed something on the screen. The camera shook as a hand, which belonged to the cameraman, emerged into view and wrapped itself around the doorknob. The hand seemed larger than normal, and it was wearing a black glove. The glove had rubber on the palms and fingers, which allowed the hand to open the door. As the door swung open in the video, I heard a small squeal come from my phone speakers. At the same time, I thought I heard a similar noise come from downstairs. I quickly turned my volume all the way down, but I didn't hear anything else. I figured I was just being paranoid, and I turned the volume back up. The door was now open, and the building, whoever this was that had just stepped in, was dark. Clearly, it was night on the video too. We appeared to be in the entryway to a small house with a small hallway leading to a small living room in which stood a flight of wooden stairs. Everything was extremely difficult to make out since the video was so dark and since I was sitting in a dark room myself and was still drowsy. Luckily, the mysterious cameraman stood still for long enough in each place for me to take a good look at it. If he hadn't, there was no way I could have properly observed everything in the frame, since, as I soon realized, there wasn't the option to pause the video. The small triangle in the middle of the screen was grayed out, and it didn't work for some reason. Again, I thought this was odd, but I didn't really think about it. I was still tired and for some reason... I was extremely curious as to where this would go. The cameraman began walking slowly through the hallway. His breathing became even more labored as he moved, covering up even the sounds of his footsteps in the video audio. Again, I thought that I heard noises coming from downstairs, but I tried my best to ignore them. That was a mistake. As the man moved through the dark house, I began to notice some striking similarities between the house in the video and my own place of residence. The layout of the house was very similar to mine. The living room and these stairs were in the exact same place as mine were. What really scared me was what happened when the gloved man reached the end of the hallway. Right next to him was a long mahogany cabinet. The cabinet was the exact same as the one my grandmother had given me when I had moved in a year ago. And on it was the old green vase that I bought when I first got the cabinet. That was it. This was too uncanny. I looked up and realized that I left my door wide open. It was pitch black in the house. The only light visible was that of my phone screen. I felt a weird chill run down my body, despite being wrapped up in blankets. I wanted to believe that this was all a nightmare, or just some weird coincidence, but none of it made sense. 
everything was just too similar. I decided it was time to turn off the video. However, when I tapped on the phone screen to bring up the option to leave the video, nothing happened. I tried again, nothing. I was frozen on the video. I couldn't leave. At this point, waves of terrifying thoughts were crashing through my head. Part of me was scared half to death, and the other part of me wanted to believe this whole experience was somehow all my imagination. Yet somehow, I was still glued to the video. Or rather, I was glued to the livestream, as I was now convinced this was. I still held on to some stupid hope that I was just going crazy, or was just being overly paranoid. For some reason, I kept watching. The man was now standing in front of the vase. In absolute terror, I looked on as the gloved hand again appeared as the cameraman reached out toward it. For the first time, I saw the mystery man's arm. It was dressed in black but the material his clothing was made out of was uh, difficult to determine. He slowly reached out and rested his hand on the smooth glass of the vase. His hand rested there for what felt like an hour, but was probably only a few seconds. His breathing only grew louder as he just stood there, with the camera pointing at the glass object. Suddenly, the hand raised up and forcefully shoved the vase over and off of the cabinet. He quickly moved the camera to show the vase fall into the floor. It broke into a thousand pieces on the wood and created a resounding crash. This was what broke me out of my trance. Because the noise didn't just come from the video. I heard it and clear as day from right beneath my bed. It was loud, and it was enough to completely wake me up and put me on full alert. I managed to turn the volume all the way down again with shaking fingers and picked it up. I beamed the light from the screen down at the floor, using it as a flashlight to see where I was stepping. I was too afraid to point it up at all for fear that the person who had broken into my house would realize that I was awake, more that I knew he was there. I carefully slid out of bed. Every sound seemed amplified in the darkness. As I slowly stood up, I listened out for any other noises in the house. I thought that I heard breathing and heavy footsteps, but that could have been my mind playing tricks on me. Now that I was sure someone was in my house, my imagination was running wild, trying to distract me. I began making my way toward the open door at the end of the room. My footsteps on the carpeted floor seemed to echo through the house, even though they probably weren't even noticeable from downstairs. I carefully dodged all the miscellaneous items that had been strewn about on the floor, like I was traversing a minefield. If I made even one noise that was too loud, I would have probably have had a heart attack from the stress. I couldn't bear the thought of whoever was downstairs charging up at me. I managed to reach the door and started to close it. I went as slow as I could to avoid making a sound, 
as the door was halfway closed, it unexpectedly creaked. I quickly held the door in its place, too scared to move a muscle. I listened out into the house for any indication that they had heard it, but I heard and saw nothing. I painstakingly continued shutting the door. I had made it past the creak in the hinges and closed it silently. The door was now only barely cracked open, and all I had to do was fully close and lock it. After much deliberation, I decided the best course of action was to just slam the door and lock it as fast as I could. I just had to hope that the intruder wouldn't break the door down. I sucked in a deep breath and closed the door all the way. In the complete silence, the sound resounded through the entire house. Still tense, I locked it and crept back to my bed. I felt slightly safer now that my door was locked. I sat down on top of all my covers and looked back at my phone. Now all I could do was wait and watch. The man was now in the doorway of my kitchen, panning the camera back and forth across the room. After a while, he took a step into the room. The camera turned to the right and revealed my set of kitchen knives. Again, the hand came out and grabbed the handle of the biggest knife. My breathing stopped. Sweat was pouring down my face and I was just hoping that this night would end. I had no idea why this was happening to me. I didn't know why I couldn't leave the video. All I wanted was to be alone in my house. By now I was wondering if the intruder knew that I was here. Maybe he thought I wasn't home or thought that I was asleep. I held on to some little hope that I had that advantage. But if he thought he was alone, why would he grab the knife? I looked around the room for any kind of weapon. The closest thing that I could find was the lamp on my nightstand. After confirming my weapon's location, I shuddered and checked the man's position. He was now walking through the living room again. I turned the volume up and leaned in, listening for anything. As I did this, I thought that I heard a faint chuckle. It was very quiet but noticeable. The intruder walked slowly through the room. I noticed that he was walking somewhat unevenly since the camera was shaking. I figured the man must have had a lamp. The cameraman's steps were so slow that I checked the clock to see how long I had been watching. I determined that I had been suffering through this video for over half an hour now. At last, the man reached the foot of my stairs. He laboriously lifted his foot onto the first step, then the next one, then the next one. I could see my door slowly come into frame as he ascended the stairs. He was climbing the steps to my room. I had never felt this level of fear before. The thought of an unknown assailant climbing these stairs right outside of my door shook me to the bone. 
I wondered what I would do when he got here. Would he try to break in? How would I fight him with nothing but a lamp? I couldn't call the police. My phone was frozen on this stupid video. I was trapped. It only took a minute for the man to reach the top of the stairs. But it felt like a thousand lifetimes had passed before he was at my door. The whole time, I could hear his footsteps as clear as day, only a few feet away from me. The video showed him taking a few steps until he was standing mere inches away from it, then angling the camera to point at the doorknob, just as he had at the beginning. The video kept going for several seconds, pointing at my door. And then the video ended. The audio stopped and the screen was completely frozen in the shot of the doorknob. I can now hear the quiet sounds of a man's breathing on the other side of the door. I beam the light from my phone down at the bottom of the door. Sure enough, two long, distinct shadows confirmed my worst fear. The man was standing at my door. Alone and out of options, I just decided to hide. And that's how I ended up here now. Squeezed between my wall and my bed's headboard, writing this out on a piece of paper. My room doesn't have any windows. The only way out is through the door that my intruder is blocking. I can't leave. I've tried everything. I can't turn off my phone. I can't leave the video. I'm trapped. It's been hours and he won't leave. My only choices are to stay here or fight. And I sure as hell can't fight him. If anyone finds this, I'm already gone. Please, just heed my warning. Be careful on the internet. You never know what you may find. Would you spend the night in the yellow room? Written by Greg A. Alexander I spent a lot of time in Warrington back in 2018. Mostly high, sometimes drunk. Moving from squat to squat, from back room to couch, I was somehow always able to find a place to sleep despite not having a lease to my name for the duration of the year. The town treated me well. There was always a house party going on, a pub to drink at, a floor to pass out on. I took full advantage of the kindness of strangers and the goodwill of friends. It wasn't warranting though, that I began to hear talk of the Yellow Room. It was something like a kid's dare, but for grown-ups. Can you spend a night in the yellow room? Let's see how long you last. I had no idea what the hell the yellow room was, but I never met a dare that a couple of lines couldn't get me to try. I was at the horse and jockey with my friend, Boz, one night, 
Boz was a weird aging metalhead with a taste for quaaludes, but he was always a good laugh. We were donning pints of something rancid when he mentioned that he might have some work for me. Before my switch to full-time screw-up, I had trained as an electrician. Boz did some contractor work and floated me little gigs every now and again. Nothing huge, but enough to keep me in booze and pills. He had started laying out the deal when I overheard the words, yellow and room, mumbled behind me. Immediately, I turned. A girl with a shaved head and what were either tattooed eyeballs or Halloween contact lenses was sat three bar stools away from us, chatting away with another lass with some kind of geometric design face tattoo. I turned back to Boz, who was clearly unimpressed that he had lost my attention. You want this gig or not, mate? Yeah, I just, I replied. I thought I heard one of those girls say something about the yellow room, he interrupted, rolling his eyes. I keep hearing about it. What the heck is it? He smirked a little and explained it to me. In the outskirts of Warrington, there is a big housing development. Or rather, there should be a big housing development. The company that was putting it together went bust in the 2008 financial crisis, leaving a big empty lot there, save one house. This was supposed to be the model home, the one that estate agents would show potential buyers in order to get them to sign on the dotted line. It had stood empty ever since the owners filed for bankruptcy, ignored and forgotten. Its future probably a footnote at the bottom of some 20,000-page legal document that no one's ever going to read. This house has gotten a bit of a reputation. While it was initially a bit of a destination for tramps, junkies, and other near-dwells, they apparently stay the heck away from the place nowadays. One of the big reasons seems to be the yellow room. So, the paint in the place is, or at least was, white. That's everything. From skirting boards to walls. Just pristine white. One room, however, had inexplicably been given a yellow door. It's one of the bedrooms towards the back of the house on the first floor. Overlooking the giant patch of grass where 20 other houses were supposed to have stood. Something about this room scares the heck out of people. So, of course, there's a dare. Can you spend a night in the yellow room? Let's see how long you last. It took me half an hour to convince Boz to drive me to the house. It took me another 20 to get him to promise to come back to pick me up in the morning. The front door of the house was closed but unlocked, so I made my way inside keeping an eye out for any security cameras or anything else that might cause me any trouble. Walking inside, I saw that some graffiti taggers had already gotten to the walls already. I saw names, swear words, accusations of promiscuity, and crude depictions of thereof tattooed on the walls of the model home. Slowly, I walked through the house, finding the staircase and carefully ascended the stairs creaked and buckled under my weight, but I made it up without a problem. Upstairs was more of the same. 
spray paint tags all over the walls and the upstairs corridor, leading all the way down the hall, stopping about six feet before the last door. The yellow painted door on the far right hand side. I twisted the handle and opened the door to the yellow room and stepped inside. The following is my attempt at explaining what happened to me inside the room. I had the voice notes app on my phone on all the time when I was in there, so I recorded myself talking. Some of the things I said in the voice recording conflict completely with what I remember happening. When there's a conflict, I printed whatever account seemed more plausible. 10.45 p.m. I entered the other room. I found myself standing inside a bedroom. Like a student's bedroom with a desk and a bookcase and a bed. There was no graffiti on the walls here, which I noted is odd. It was on almost every wall in the rest of the house. I eyed the bed. I was feeling like I could get sleepy in the next couple of hours. I wondered if it was comfy. I hope no one had screwed on it. 11.05 p.m. I realized that I had spent the last 20 minutes staring out the bedroom window, watching two rats fight violently over what looked like a chocolate digestive biscuit in the field outside of the house. 11.06 p.m. I screamed as I turned around, and the haggard face behind me stared into my eyes. I felt silly when I realized that that haggard face was in fact mine. I hadn't noticed that there is a mirror on the wall of the room when I came in. Crap, I cackled. And then I heard the creak. Turning around again, I realized that I had left the door to the room slightly ajar. Something in me decided that it would be against the spirit of the yellow room dare to keep the door open. So I decided to close it. As soon as I did, it creaked open again. So much for that. I sat in the bed. It felt cold. I reached down to feel the blanket and it felt damp. I stood up again. My jeans were wet. I felt sick. 12 a.m. Midnight chimed. My butt was slowly drying off. I looked out the window again and saw that there was a dog sitting on the field, looking back at me. I turned around, expecting to see my face in the mirror again, but the mirror was so filthy that I couldn't see anything in it. I swear that just an hour previously, I could see my own features as plain as day. 12.10 AM I looked through the crack in the door at the corridor outside. I wondered about the graffiti in the corridor and I wondered why it seemed to stop some six feet before this room. My nausea started kicking in again. My stomach was churning. Something felt tight in my throat. I heard a dripping noise. I scanned the room, looking for the source, but finding nothing. 12.45 a.m. The dog had gone. Outside the window, all I could see was the empty field. 
The grass was swaying in the breeze, lit only by the moon. The drippy noise had only gotten louder. I looked around the other room trying to find the source. My eyes glanced back at the bed, and I saw that water was dripping off the blanket draped on top of it. I patted my jeans, noticing that they had managed to dry off. I looked out the crack in the doorway. The far wall of the corridor seemed further away than before. My stomach was in knots. I dropped to my knees and began to dry heave, but nothing came up. 1am. There was a man in the field. I could see him clearly through the window. He was dressed in a large brown overcoat and a pair of blue jeans. His face was angular and stern. He made no movements, simply staring up at me from the field outside. 1.15am. I considered smoking the emergency joint that I had brought with me in my pocket to try and take the edge of my nausea off. I decided against it when I looked out the door again and saw nothing outside. Not the wall, not a corridor, not even darkness. There was nothing outside the room. 1.20 a.m. The window was gone. The window had been taken away. 1.30 a.m. The power came on in the house. The overhead lights in the other room switched on immediately. I don't think the model house had ever been connected to the power grid. And if it had, it would have been disconnected years ago. Now the light was on, and I could see details in the room that I hadn't noticed before. The walls each had small holes drilled into them. Some at eye level, some much lower. I tried to peer through one, but I couldn't see anything. I also noticed that the far wall face in the bed was actually not there. And it had never been there. And why did I think there was a wall there to begin with? Clearly, the bedroom was much larger than I had originally thought. I stepped around the bed to investigate the rest of the room and found it to be completely empty. My nausea was joined by a distinctive feeling or sorrow. I felt sad that there was nothing in this part of the room, that it was empty and ignored. 1.45 a.m. There is a man watching me through the crack of the door. I couldn't see much aside from his withered, deep-set eyes. I stared back at him until he went away. 2 a.m. I wish that the window was still there. I knew I could climb out and probably survive the drop to the ground below. I thought I could take my chances with the man or the dog or the biscuit rats if I needed to, but I couldn't stay in this room much longer. The steady drip drip of the water from the bed had become a trickle. I walked to the bed and felt the blanket. My hand passed through it like water. The blanket was dripping away. The bed was dripping away. Everything was dripping away. There was nothing left but the room. 
I reached for the joint in my pocket. I had no clue what to do otherwise. Instead, I pulled out a child's severed finger. I did not smoke it. 2.10 AM The nausea in my stomach became a shooting pain. I dropped to all fours again and I threw up everything in my stomach. When I glanced down, I saw nothing but red. I looked up at the walls of the yellow room. They pursed like lips. And then they folded open and grinned. My phone went dead somewhere around this time. All I remember past this was a bright glowing light. And my friend Boz standing over me. I was in the yard outside of the model house. I'm told that I'm the person who has lasted the longest in that room. Or at least, the person who has lasted the longest without dying. I was in a hospital for about a week. I couldn't stop throwing up. I couldn't keep anything at all down. Three days of IV pumping fluids into my body and I was able to eat soft foods. A few days later, I was fine to leave, crashing in Boz's back room, until I was able to find myself a room to rent on my own. Every now and again, I wake up or come to, and I know that I'm in the wrong place. I look up at the ceiling above me, and notice that the ceiling is a few inches higher than it should be. Perhaps one of the pictures on the wall is missing. Or the couch that I'm sleeping on is pulsating. It takes me a few minutes, but I always come back to what I understand as reality. I spent the night in the yellow room. And now I'm carrying a tiny sliver of it with me. There's a strange newspaper that's only delivered at midnight. Written by Midnight Paper. I have decided to transcribe my father's journal. I figure it'll help me understand what was happening to me and what is now happening to everyone in my neighborhood. My dad was a quiet, reserved, and no-nonsense kind of guy. I didn't really get to know him much, so this is a way for me to get in touch with him, to hear about his life, to hear his voice, even beyond the grave. I hope that you get to know him too, and that together, anyone who has gotten a midnight paper learns a little more about it. This is what was written in the first section of the journal. Son, I know that if you're reading this, it's you. I hope you aren't. I hope that this notebook and all the others get thrown out once you sell our house. If you are reading this, well, I guess I can't stop you from reading this. I know that there's a good chance that you found this notebook after reading a midnight paper. If you haven't read one, listen to me very carefully. Do not read the midnight paper. If you've only read one... Listen to me very carefully. Do not read any more. 
I'm not sure, but I think that reading the papers makes the things in them real. Some of the articles that I've read have already come true. Some people are already in danger, hurt, or dead. I may have found a way to stop this. First though, I'm going to transcribe all the midnight papers I received. Some of them I have transcribed already across several notebooks, and I'm just copying them here. Some of them I haven't gotten yet, but I know I will. I know, writer. I never went to college, but here's my version of what happened anyway. The first time I saw a midnight paper was when I was 18, in 1969 in a Shaw Valley, Vietnam. I haven't talked about my time in the war much. I never felt that I had to. I'm not going to go into much detail here, just what's necessary. I was a leatherneck with a 3rd Marine Division, part of what they said was called Operation Dawson River. For us though, it didn't matter what you called it. We were just wading through miles and miles of water and elephant grass. I'm from Brooklyn. I used to think these summers there were hot, but this was something else. The heat was like a living thing. You would feel it wrapping around you, squeezing the air out of your lungs and the sweat out of your skin. We mostly did a lot of walking. I'm not going to talk about what we did when we weren't walking. During the day, we stayed quiet. All you would hear was the sound of the feet of the guy in front of you working into the mud, the feet of the guy behind you, and your feet. We would eat as we walked. No talking there either. We got used to it. There were a few good times. We would join some of the groups of young guys at the fire support base and talk crap, smoke weed, and listen to music and play cards. Be kids again for a bit. That's where I met Ty. I was 18, but pretty big for my age. Most guys thought I was in my late 20s. Ty was the opposite. It was impossible to look at him and not think that he was 16. He was skinny, wore glasses that were always scuffed up or caked in grime, and had the deepest voice I'd ever heard. This guy sounded like freaking Leonard Cohen. Anyway, Ty was popular with the guys because he had somehow managed to smuggle in a bunch of comic books. Had them mailed to him too. People would trade him a beer, some beef jerky, or even a joint for a Captain America or an Archie. Most of the time, people would pretend to be older than they were, would pretend that they were men and not boys. But with Ty, it was different. He was like everyone's little brother, and it was cool to sit back, light up, and hear the kid talk about what I had always thought of as the funny pages. And then one day, Ty got something that wasn't a comic book in the mail. We were on patrol and we had set up our rest overnight spot. You slept sitting down with your back to another leatherneck so as to watch each other's six. I was back to back with Ty and he woke me up by muttering something. I didn't quite catch it but it sounded like, not here or out here. What? I asked turning around to see what he was looking at. There in front of his feet was a bundle of black paper. At the time, I thought it was some kind of knapsack. Ty ignored me. He just set his M16 and used a knife to cut the little bundle open. It unrolled itself slowly and there, at the top of what I could see as a page, were the words, The Midnight Paper. 
What is that, a newspaper? I asked. Ty nodded. I was getting him back at home for a while. Real weird. Always shows up at midnight. Then knock on your door three times and... I felt something hit my boots three times too. Guess I didn't wake up until now. It was almost dawn and just bright enough to make out the words on the page. Come on, I said. Read it out loud. Ty didn't look convinced. I don't know if I should, he said. I lunged like I was going to grab it, and Ty held it at bay. He may have saved my life. Fine, he said. Ty read the following out loud. Treehead. Paranoia on the battlefield. After several reports of a strange creature in the hells of Vietnam, military officers urged all members of the armed forces to remain calm but vigilant. The first sighting occurred several weeks ago. Station Dad's redacted reported it to his commanding officer. I thought it was just a tree at first, redacted said. I don't know what kind, just the type you always see out there. But it kept moving like it was following me around. The first few times it was sticking out of some tall grass or some bushes, so I couldn't see where it ended. But I saw it standing out in the open ones. It's a man. The tree's trunk grown out where the neck should be. It's this huge tree, like 20 feet tall, covered in leaves and everything, like all the other ones out here. But it was coming out where the head should have been. The thing was wearing a uniform too. One of theirs. It had arms, legs, even freaking sandals. It was just like a normal guy with a giant tree where the head should be, you know. I lit the thing up, but... It didn't make a sound or nothing. They called me out about shooting without reason, giving away our position. I don't give a crap. Now every tree I see, I'm keeping my gun on. The bizarre treehead phenomenon was even cited as being the cause of a helicopter crash. The thing took out a freaking Huey, said one witness. The tree part of it was maybe 15 feet at one moment, and then it grew to what must have been 100 feet tall. The Huey slammed right into it, and then it shrank back down like that was what it wanted to do all along. Those in command are convinced that they have an explanation for the uncanny sightings. It's paranoia, plain and simple, said Redacted. We've got people out here who are sleeping two or three hours a night if at all. These men are trained to look for enemies in the trees of the tall grass. Seeing an enemy in the trees when he's not really there isn't anything new. Seeing the same enemy as a tree is a natural extension of that. The men on patrol, however, are convinced that Treehead is a real threat. They have started blaming disappearances on the creature, and even casualties in battle. The thing's a killer, said one alleged witness. Its head may look like a tree, but that don't mean it's a normal tree, right? Indeed, there have been reports that, during a firefight, the creature known as Treehead alters its tree in all manner of deadly ways, all to defend the Viet Cong. Some men have reported seeing the branches of Treehead's head extend and skewer men. Some have reported witnessing Treehead grow vine-like protrusions to lift men who wander too close to it, swallowing them into its leaves so that they'll never be seen again. Still... Other witnesses have reported a treehead showering troops on patrol with strange spores.
The men covered in these spores have all been killed within a few days. Always by incoming enemy fire. It's as if that stuff attracts bullets somehow, said one witness. And despite how interesting these reports may be, all evidence points to the being known as a treehead, simply being a hallucination brought on by sleep deprivation and anxiety about enemy forces. Still, it may be wise to stay away from any unidentified vegetation. Ty put the midnight paper down. I burst out laughing. What is that man, an arts and crafts project? Did Jamie put you up to this? Ty shook his head. He wasn't smiling, he was pale. This will come true, he said. Just wait and see. A few weeks later, Ty was gone. He didn't go out during combat. He just up and vanished one night. Some people say that he went to take a piss and stumbled upon a foxhole or an enemy patrol. Maybe he was taken prisoner or killed outright. To this day, he's listed as MIA. Part of or around the 1600 MIA still unaccounted for in the conflict. The funny thing is, he was right. A week or so after I read that strange newspaper, people really did start saying they saw a treehead. Back then, I thought that Ty had told them about it. Now I know better. Because the next midnight paper I got was delivered to my front door. That was the first entry in my dad's notebook. I'm going to keep reading. I know that most of my neighbors, if not all of them, are getting midnight papers now. I have to find a way to stop them from being delivered. Finding out more about the papers is the only way to do that. I sat on my front porch on Wednesday, just a few minutes before midnight. I wouldn't be getting a midnight paper tonight, but most people on my black would. And if they did, whatever article they read would come true. I didn't know if every copy of the midnight paper held the same article, or if they would all come true in the same way mine had, within the same time frame. I didn't intend to find out. My phone alarm blared, alerting me to the fact that it was now 11.59pm. I sprinted off my front porch and ran to the house next door, and then froze. I wasn't planning on interfering with the delivery process itself. I had learned my lesson. I was now an outsider, someone coming between the paper and its intended recipient. I had a feeling that whatever system or entity delivered each copy wouldn't exactly be thrilled by my presence. So I waited for another minute. I saw the light on my neighbor's front porch flicker, dwindle, and then cut off completely. Then I blinked and it was back on, shiny normally. Nothing looked different from where I was standing, but I knew that it was. Inexplicably different. Irrevocably different. Something had appeared on my neighbor's welcome mat that could change his life and existence as we know it forever. I walked toward the welcome mat cautiously, eyeing the darkened windows for any movement or light. I knew that the paper's arrival meant that three knocks had been hammered onto the mosquito screen by something. If he had been woken up by it, then who knew how much time I had before my neighbor went to check his front door. I took the last few steps, crossing the threshold separating perfectly legal evening stroll to very illegal trespassing. I was about to cross yet another threshold, too, if things went as planned. There on a welcome mat so worn you could count its remaining fibers, 
was a bundle of black paper. The midnight paper. I didn't hesitate. I acted the same way I might if the bundle in front of me held dynamite instead of paper and the fuse was lit. I lunged, reached out, and clutched the midnight paper in one swift motion. I pulled my hand up, then lowered it and pulled it up again. I was confused. I had to be imagining it. Maybe I hadn't closed my hand right. Maybe the nerves had gotten the better of me and... No. My eyes weren't playing tricks on me. My hand was empty. I reached for the paper much more slowly, making sure my fingers were dropping as close to the welcome mat as possible. I focused, guiding each trembling digit toward the black bundle, planning out their trajectory and imagining them closing around the paper, as if I were moving my hand for the first time. Then my fingers went through it, through the paper, as if it were a trick of the light, as if it were made of shadows. As if there was nothing there. Nothing solid anyway. I bolted, practically throwing myself off my neighbor's porch and retreating to the safety of my parents' house. It didn't let me grab it. It didn't let me take it. It didn't let me stop it. And I was pretty sure I knew why. That midnight paper wasn't meant for me. It was meant for my neighbor. I collapsed onto my dad's chair. In front of me, already open to the next entry, was his journal. I had to read more, to find out more, because my dad said that he may have found a way to stop the midnight paper. But most importantly of all, I had to keep reading because my dad hadn't stopped the midnight paper. This was what was written in my dad's handwriting. I made it through Vietnam, somehow. This may not mean a lot to some people reading this, but it sure as shit meant a lot for me. I saw kids who were smarter than me, better than me, more there than me, meant for more than me, cut down and tossed aside, blown away like chunks of pointless meat. They call it survivor's guilt, but I always thought that it was stupid. I didn't feel guilty about living through all I had. I felt lost, like a piece of flotsam that drifted in just the right way to find its way ashore. A piece of flotsam that had survived when hundreds of pieces around it had been crushed, burned, or swept under by the wreckage of a gargantuan shab. I'd call what I felt, survivor's anger, survivor's indignation, survivor's haze, anything but guilt. I went back to the States. I heard that some vets were offended by the way that they were received. Years of protest for peace had passed. Years of people claiming that we were a cruel machine spewing napalm and automatic gunfire, man reducing a people and a nation to nothing, that we were the bad guys. We were a giant boot on the throat of a tiny nation. I wasn't offended. I agreed with the anger and the hate. I knew that I was a cog and a cruel machine. I knew that I was partly to blame. I didn't feel guilt. I felt shame. There's a difference. I didn't turn to drugs like some of us did, but I guess that's subjective. I didn't go home. I went to the place where I was born. There's a difference. I didn't stay anywhere for long. There was something missing everywhere I went. I avoided people. They asked too many questions, cast too many looks. Until I found her. She had a flower's name and she reminded me of one. 
She had the same kind of innocent wisdom I attributed to everything in nature. I saw flowers in Vietnam that were less colorful, less forgiving about our trampling boots and our fire and our filth than she was. I met your mother of all places at a bus stop. She had asked me what time it was. I said I didn't know and she smiled. She was too kind. A few years later, we had managed to scrounge together enough and save up for a house. Her parents had helped. It wasn't just that, that they were better off than mine. They were. The fact that she still talked to them didn't hurt. The day you were born, I felt more pride and more shame than I had ever felt in my entire life. You were so clean, so new. So unmarked by the filth and the cruelty of the world. I felt like something vile, evil, dirty, tired. I wanted to run away and leave you and your mother to share your light. But I stayed. Because you were so bright, you pulled my darkness in. I didn't talk to you much. Because I thought my words would poison you. That they would echo in your tiny head and become part of your own. But I loved to hear you talk. Loved the way you strung ideas together. So when your mother told me to tell you a story... To be more involved with what you were so quickly becoming passionate about. I told the only one that I knew. I told you about the midnight paper. I had told your mother first, years before. But when I told you, it felt more final. If you ever have kids, you'll know. Every word you speak to them feels heavy. Like it's made of iron. Like iron, it would leave a mark. So I sat with you in my office, and I let you in. You liked the books and the pictures. You explored the room the same way someone would explore an uncharted cavern. Like a cavern, too. It was dark and filled with danger. I made the midnight paper sound like something magical. Like something exciting. You get it without wanting to, I said. It just finds its way to your front door. It's delivered to only some homes at midnight. On the dot. You get three knocks on your door and it's there. It just shows up. You like that part. Heck, you like the whole story. Your face lit up like in a way I had never seen when you were with me. You got that way whenever your mother talked to you. I must have told you about the paper over a dozen times before it happened. One night, as I was filling your mother in on what you and I had talked about, we heard three knocks on our front door. I ran toward it. I didn't have a gun in the house and I almost regretted that there. There was nobody in the people so I opened the door. There on a welcome mat was something I would recognize anywhere. A bundle of black paper. Exactly like the one Ty had gotten. I brought it inside and tossed it onto my desk. I cut the twine and the paper unrolled itself like a half-dead bug. I saw a header written in blocky white letters. The Midnight Paper. I couldn't read anything else. Because there was nothing else. Below the header was just a heap of garbled text. I couldn't grasp it. No matter how I turned it around my mind. It was as if my eyes had slipped off of the edge of the words. I was going to throw it out. But then your mother walked in. The knocks had startled her. My behavior had terrified her. So she looked and read a few of the words out loud. My eyes went wide, unbelieving. She could read the paper. I couldn't. I didn't get it then, but I do now. 
She was the intended recipient, not me. Every particle of the paper was meant for her. After a little convincing, your mother agreed to read the article out loud. This is what was written on the page. Guess, board game blamed for homicides pulled from shelves. What did the person across from you have for breakfast? What's the person next to you hiding in their pocket? Who is that knocking on your front door? Guess. These words printed on a white cardboard box greeted shoppers perusing these shelves in the weeks before Thanksgiving. It seemed harmless, said a shopper who witnessed one of the boxes. My family doesn't really play board games, so I didn't consider getting it. Thank God I didn't. The cover of the cardboard box depicts a smiling family sat around a dining room table, and between them is a white game board. A series of black and white squares line the edge of the board, forming a wide rectangle inside which sits a single deck of black cards. There are game pieces populating several of the squares. Each is a rough plastic depiction of a human being. There is a pair of black dice in the hand of a smiling woman, presumably the mother of the two happy family. The families who played the game for real were anything but happy. The rules are simple. The instruction booklet proclaims. Each player picks a single game piece and places them in the starting square at one corner of the board. This is also the final square. The aim of the game is to move around the board and to be the first player to reach the last square. The game is played by rolling the die and moving the number of squares corresponding to the die roll. Upon moving to the correct square, a player must draw a single card from the top of the deck in the center of the game board. On each card is a fun prompt to guess something about one of the players in the game. For example, one of our 100 cards reads, Guess what your daughter did with her boyfriend on Friday. If you guess correctly, you can stay in the square your game piece landed in. If you guess incorrectly, well, shocks. You gotta move your piece back to the starting square. The game doesn't end until all the pieces move to the final square. After not being seen for several days, police officers performed a wellness check at the redacted residence and redacted. What they found inside the family's home was nightmarish, to say the least. The family was found sitting around the dining table, said an officer from the police department. They had been dead for several days. There were several weapons in the room, mostly guardian equipment and knives from the kitchen. The board game itself appears to have been placed clandestinely in each store, with barcode stickers identifying it as another game the store had in stock. The manufacturer of the game is unknown at this time, but there appears to be a great deal of effort and money expended in the game's creation. None of its elements are cheap or shoddy in the slightest. The prevailing theory of the local law enforcement is that the game provoked them into attacking each other. Said Dr. Redacted, a local psychologist who was consulted regarding the grisly scene. But that explanation doesn't satisfy me, or anyone who knew the family involved. Nobody in their right mind would have followed the game's directions, no matter how angry they may have gotten with each other. The directions that Dr. Redacted is referring to were printed on each of the guest cards in the game's deck. The card started out harmlessly. The first read, Guess the size of the shirt the person on your left is wearing. The next card, however, was already delving into controversial territory. It read, 
Guess how much the little shit on your right stole from your wallet? The cards got worse and worse. Guess who the pig in front of you is screwing behind your back? Eventually, the cards began prompting violence. Guess who's gonna grab a knife from the kitchen? Guess how many pencils you can fit into your wife's right eye? A few days later, another family on the other side of town were also reported missing by concerned co-workers and family members. A similar scene that in the first home was discovered in their living room. All four members of the family were dead, with all the evidence pointing to the fact that they had killed each other with household objects. The guest board game was on a coffee table in the center of the room. There were several cards tossed on the bloody carpet, each containing violent directions. One read, Guess how many shots of drain cleaner it takes until your mother collapses. I believe that there's a very simple explanation, said Dr. Redacted. It is very likely that the game was placed in the shops and then observed by its creator or creators. Once a customer purchased it, they were followed home. One or more perpetrators forced the family to play, most likely while threatening their lives with a firearm. This is the only explanation for seemingly normal families to attack each other in such a bad way. There is no evidence to support that theory. Chief of the local police department stated, There are no signs of forced entry to any of the homes. There is no forensic evidence to support the presence of anyone, except for the family members being at the scene. I'm no psychologist, but I would never do those things to any member of my family, even if someone was holding us at gunpoint. There is a third explanation, one that is often exposed online. A supernatural explanation. What if the people who play the game absolutely have to guess? Wrote one anonymous online user. What if their guesses actually come true somehow? What if you guess that someone will go to the kitchen to grab a knife? Then that person is forced to move in to do what you said. Whatever the case may be, one thing is clear. If you see a board game called Guest for sale at any store, do not buy it. Do not play it. Call the authorities and alert the store owners so that they may remove it safely. Your mother and I decided to never talk to you about the midnight paper again. I wish that getting rid of it had been that simple. I'll keep transcribing my dad's notes and sharing them on here. I have to find a way to stop this. Hey everyone, I know that some of you may have been wondering where I've been. The truth is that I've had a hard time processing my father's writing because I did something that I maybe shouldn't have. I read ahead. I'll do my best to transcribe his writing, though I know that it'll be hard to relive the events that he describes. Here goes nothing. After my failure to grab the midnight paper from my neighbor's porch, I decided to hold off on trying to interfere with the paper for a while. I felt like it knew me somehow. It knew that I had tried to stop it before, and I was trying to distance itself from me as a result. My only course of action right now is to keep reading and see if there are any clues in my dad's journal that may help me understand the paper more, and maybe find a way to stop it. This is my father's next entry. Your mother and I sat on my office, the midnight paper sitting between us. You can't read it, she asked. She was incredulous even then, even when I had told her about Thai's paper in Vietnam. I think that you thought that I had made the whole thing up, that I had made a copy of the paper to scare her or something. I wish that I had. 
I looked at the page in front of me once again, just to humor her. Once again, the words were all jumbled up. All I could make out was the header. I can't read it, I said finally. I'm not making it up, I really can't. Well, who delivered it then, she asked. There was a sly smile in her face as if she knew that that would stump me. It did because I didn't know the answer then. I still don't. No idea. You better not be pulling a prank on me. She didn't sound convinced though. There was something creeping into her voice then. Something like fear. Something like the cold realization that she knew me. That she knew that I would never write something like that. This is really effed up. The stuff about families killing each other like that. Who comes up with that? I shrugged. Who came up with Treehead? Ty said that it just shows up. He also said that the articles in it come true somehow. Now your mother was smiling again. It was the kind of smile that says, Now I know you're pulling my leg. But I wasn't smiling. I hadn't stopped pacing since she had read the article out loud to me. She had only seen me like that on my bad days. On the days that I get to thinking about Ty and the rest of the guys that we lost in the jungle. About how it could have happened to me. We didn't talk about the paper much after that. We just rolled it up and tossed it into a plastic bag with the rest of that day's trash. And we were busy then. It was easier to forget things. You at school, we at work. We all brought work and worries home. Now that I'm alone and no longer working, it's different. It's as if all I do is think. All I do is remember. I wish that I could forget. I wish that this dang house wasn't so empty. So prone to echoing my thoughts and my memories and throwing them back at me. But it's better that you're not here. It's too dangerous. Because I've been getting the paper too. A few days after we had thrown that first paper away, your mother and I were lying in bed. This may come to a shock as you, but we didn't exactly go to bed at 9pm like you did. We had a little TV set in our room, which I'm sure you've forgotten. Your mother loved watching movies. She had seen the hundreds of VHS and Beta. Sci-fi movies were her favorite. Anything with aliens and space and laser beams. She would sit there staring at the tiny screen with a cigarette in her hand, with this little smile on her face. That's cool, she would say. And I would turn around and there was a guy with a laser sword or a guy in a robot suit. I wish I could remember her like that forever. I wish that she had the volume up too loud. Loud enough that we would never have heard the knocks on our front door. But she wouldn't do that, because you were sleeping in the next room. And so we heard it. It was impossible not to. Whoever was knocking, it was like they knew exactly how to hit the door so that we would hear it in our room. I don't know if you heard it in yours. I hope that you didn't. Your mother wanted to call the cops. She thought that the paper was being delivered by someone who was dangerous. Someone who wanted to scare us. I think I know that she was right. We decided against calling the police. If they couldn't read the paper like I couldn't, they wouldn't be as alarmed as we were. I didn't know what to do. I wanted to throw it away, but your mother said that we should read it. That it might give us some insight into who or what was doing it. If there is a reason they're targeting us, we might find out by reading it. I agreed. Part of me was curious too. But now I wish that I hadn't. 
Whenever I think about that moment, that choice, it's as if every fiber of my present being is screaming at my past self. Screaming at him to never let your mother read another paper again. But he can't hear me. So, I remember myself opening the door, bringing the paper inside, and handing it to your mother. We sat in my office. The door had a lock and as soon as your mother and I were both in, she had locked it. Even then, it was as if we knew that this was dangerous, that you could never get involved with it. Why we knew that and still kept going is a mystery. Maybe that's how the paper works. How it grabs people and pulls them in. Curiosity can override common sense if something is intriguing enough. Your mother cut the black strings holding the paper together and we watched it unfold itself slowly. She grabbed it, held it under the lamp on my desk and began reading. Strange news broadcast reported on a local cable. Local cable companies and redacted are stumped after reports of a strange news broadcast appearing in places of redacted news. Viewers reported that this broadcast appeared after a regular commercial break, right in the time slot usually reserved for redacted news. It looked like a normal news broadcast at first, said a local resident, but I knew something was weird when the anchorman was different. I mean, redacted had been on the air for years, the guy's a local legend, and the logo was different too. It said U News instead of like your regular Channel 6 News. But the anchorman and logo were not the only changes. Instead of local and national news, they started talking about me, about us, about my family. At first, it was about how my wife had gone to the supermarket, and it was saying exactly what she had bought. Then it was talking about my kids, what they did at school, and what grades they got. I even found out that my son had failed a math test, and had said that he had tried to change an F into a B with a red pen, and then gave up and hid it in his locker. The redacted household wasn't the only family in town who was affected. In fact, it appeared that around 1 out of every 20 houses received the broadcast, with the rest of the households in town getting the regular news. A retired widow was one of the people affected. It was awful. At first, I thought that it was someone playing a prank, like maybe some loony in town had messed with my television. But that man that anchor knew things about me that nobody else could. He said what I had had for breakfast, what I had watched on TV, when I had gone to the bathroom, and what I had um, done there. It was an intrusion. And then the next day, it happened again. I know a lot of people in town complained to the cable company and to do that channel specifically, but at 6pm, there it was again. It should have been the regular news. News always goes on at 6. And it was even worse this time. The anchor began saying what I'd be doing tomorrow, as if he knew. He said that I would call my daughter and tell her about the strange news broadcast and ask her for help. He said what I would eat and exactly at what time even saying that I would think twice about it and try eating something different to what he had said, but I wouldn't. And she was right. More and more of the townspeople began reporting that the strange anchor had been right about what they would do the next day. It was as if he could see the future. It got worse and worse, said Mr. Redacted. The guy got on one night and was saying what my family and I would be doing the next week, and then the next month. I tried unplugging the TV, but the thing was still playing with no electricity. We called and called the cable company, and they even sent a guy out to replace the box. But that night at 6pm, it happened again. 
This time, the anchorman looked pissed like he knew we had been complaining. And then he started saying awful things. About how I would have a heart attack in three days. About how my son would get hit by a car. I hope the guy is wrong, but my son's staying indoors no matter what. Indeed, many residents began complaining that the anchorman was only reporting bad news. He said that one woman would be diagnosed with cancer, and he was right. He said that one man would lose his job, and he was right. But perhaps the most disturbing thing he predicted was the unforgivable crime that Redacted would commit. Redacted was one of the most vocal residents who complained to the cable company and the local police about the news broadcast. When the companies had insisted that there was nothing wrong with their service and that the other residents were getting the normal news as usual, Redacted urged other townspeople to unplug their TVs and put them all in a storage unit that he owned. It seemed that nearly all the residents who were getting U-News took him up on the offer, adding their TVs to the back of Redacted's pickup truck and helping him unload them into a storage unit. Even some of the townspeople who weren't getting these strange broadcasts opted to add their TVs to the pile. It seemed to work, at first. But that night at 6pm, every house that had received the broadcast on TV made a startling discovery. Their radios were playing new news and the anchor sounded angry. He began by reading off the exact date, time, and cause of death of every person who was listening. And then the anchor reported to everyone exactly what Redacted would be doing in a few hours. He said that Redacted would try to throw his radio away, but that his car radio would start playing the broadcast at full volume. Then Redacted would take a hammer to the car radio to destroy it. And when that wouldn't work, he would take his rifle out and shoot it. But just as he did, he would hear the anchor saying that he would go inside and well, you know the rest. After reports of uh, several gunshots being fired in the redacted home, two responding officers of the local PD would enter the house forcefully, only to discover the bodies of Redacted's family. His wife and their children, even their family dog, all shot. Redacted himself was sitting in the backyard, with the radio he had thrown away only hours earlier. Onlookers reported that Redacted kept screaming the same words over and over again. The news made me do it. The news made me do it. After Redacted's reprehensible actions, U-News never appeared on the local airwaves again. But some of the affected residents claimed that what the anchor had said was still happening. I cheated on my wife, said a local man who wishes to remain anonymous. Exactly like the guy in the news said. I didn't want to, I swear. I tried to stop it. But it was like I was being forced to do it like I couldn't control myself. The horrible predictions about the Redacted were correct too. Mr. Redacted had a heart attack three days after our initial interview, and his son ran out of the house, even if his wife attempted to stop him. The boy ran into the street and was hit by an oncoming car. The driver, whose name the local police has tried to keep hidden from the public, was one of the people who had gotten the broadcast. His neighbors have stated that he was concerned about the news broadcast predictions that he would run a kid over and subsequently take his own life. The anchor was right once again, but whether that man wanted to do it or if he was being forced to remains a mystery. Once your mother was done reading, it was as if something heavy, something huge, something invisible had appeared in the room with us. It was something bigger than us, more dangerous than us, 
like some undiscovered animal that you don't want to mess with. Jesus, I said, collapsing into my chair. Your mother looked how I felt, pale, regretful. Reading this paper reminded me of when I was sober for a year before, taking a drink and throwing it all away. The urge was strong before, but the regret was stronger after. This time, I locked the paper up in my filing cabinet. It had a lock, and it was taller than you were back then. It felt safe there, like it couldn't hurt you or us anymore. But it wasn't safe. Not at all. Knowing what happened to my mother, knowing what's going to come next, makes me want to stop reading. Makes me regret ever starting in the first place. But I have to keep going. This is bigger than my family now. It always was. As the days drag on, I've been searching through the news and online forums, looking for something out of place, something odd, something that only the paper could have caused. I found a few things. There are reports of a street lamp that moves around, appearing even inside a home once. Someone has reported sighting a strange woman with a backward head. Someone has recently written about there being a man without skin walking around their neighborhood. Each one of these posts mentions a black newspaper. I have sent the writers of each a message, including a summary of my experiences and offering my help. Now, I just have to wait and read. This is my father's next entry. After we got the midnight paper with the U News article, your mother and I decided to sit by the front door the next night, right before midnight. Midnight came and went without a single knock on our door. That went on for a few nights. Each night, your mother and I would wait for you to go to bed, and then slink past your room. Then we would make our way to the living room, put on a pot of coffee, and sit in front of the door for as long as we could to keep our eyes open. After a few days, we felt safe that it was safe enough for us to sleep in our room again. Maybe the midnight paper had forgotten about us. Maybe the copies that we had gotten were the only ones that we were going to get. We were wrong. One night after we were already in bed, the knocks came once again. Once again too, it was midnight. Your mother had been brushing her teeth. I remember the look of shock on her face. Her mouth widened full of foam as she attempted to say something. But then she spit and tossed her toothbrush in the sink. It's back, I said. One week after the first one, she said. It's on a schedule, it's not every night. Well, we're not reading it, that's for sure. We just can't leave it out there though, someone will find it. I frowned as she had a point. I'm throwing the thing away, I said, stomping down the stairs. Your mother rushed after me, arguing the whole way. She thought throwing it away or destroying it was irresponsible. What if it was evidence? What if there was something in it that could tell us who was writing it? The same arguments she had used last time, and she knew it too. But it seemed like it was that way with the paper. There was a cyclical quality to it, like a ritual. You would argue you would think of throwing it away, but you would always end up reading it in the end. Well, not that time. That time, I was going to toss the thing in the storm drain. And I looked through the people. Nothing, no one. So I unlocked the front door and stepped outside. There in our brand new welcome mat was a rolled up bundle of black paper. 
I leaned over, lunged for the paper, and grabbed it. At least I thought I did. My hand was closed and there was nothing in it. Your mother was behind me at the door. She had been in the process of telling me not to throw it away, but the words had died in her throat because she had seen what I did. I reached for the paper again, taking my time. I wanted to make sure. I wanted to see it happen. My finger reached at the black paper, but then kept moving, moving through the paper, as though there was nothing there. Holy shit, your mother said. She never cussed. Holy shit, I said too. Let me try. I stood up and stepped to the side. Your mother reached down and closed her fingers around the paper and pulled it up. She was holding it like there was nothing wrong with it. Okay, she said. We can't throw this away. Fine, I said, but we're not reading it. We're locking the thing away in the cabinet. She nodded. Just as we were moving back in, I reached for the paper and touched it. Something had changed there. I didn't know back then, but I think I do now. The midnight paper is alive somehow. It knows what you want to do with it. and decides whether or not to let you. It didn't want me to toss it into the storm drain. But I guess it didn't mind being put in a drawer though. I held the paper in my hand and dropped it. Rolled up as it was into the five-man cabinet drawer. And then I closed it and locked it, taking the key. You were full of energy as a kid. You spoke so fast that we could barely understand you at times, only catching one or two clear words in a torrent of excited rambling. Your eyes were always wide, always shooting from one thing to the next, as if searching for something amazing that you knew had to be there. I don't know how you are now. That's my biggest regret. Whenever we went to any store, you would run past your mother and I, rushing through the automatic doors and sprinting toward the toy aisle. This time was no different. You ran past us and darted into the toy section. By the time we got there, you were already grabbing what seemed like dozens of boxes. Hey there, buddy, your mom said. I leave some stuff for Santa, all right. I don't believe in, you started. I raised my eyebrows. There were a ton of kids around you and what you were about to say was sacrilege. You simply sighed and nodded. It took you an eternity to put everything back where you had found it. I'm glad it did because it gave your mother and I time to find it. There, next to Life and Clue and all the other board game usual suspects, was something new but familiar. A white cardboard box depicting a happy family sitting around a dining room table. Above them in black letters was a word that made my legs feel weak. Gas. Your mother and I shared a concerned look. You were almost done putting everything back. If you came over and saw us looking at a board game, you would want to get it. Even if we said no, you would remember it and you would ask your friends about it. You would definitely play it if any of them got it. I moved fast. I didn't want to touch the thing, so I grabbed a clue and used it to push the gas into the back of the shelf, and then off the edge. I heard the box clatter as it fell and became wedged in the negative space between shelves, where nobody would find it. Hopefully. When you got back, we made up an excuse to go out of the store as quickly as we could without arousing your suspicion. That night, when you were already in bed, your mother stormed toward my office. She didn't have to say anything. I already knew what she meant to do. Wait a minute, I began. She cut me off. We're reading it. 
What? Why? Because it's coming true, she said. What is in the articles is really happening. We have to read it. We have to warn people of what's coming next. We already know what's coming, I said. The news channel thing. Yeah, but we only know that because we read the article. Stop, hey, don't open that. But she was already unlocking it. What if it's something worse, she said, her eyes wide with panic. I had never seen her like that, not once, and I didn't like it one bit. What if reading it makes it worse, makes it happen? If it happens anyway and we don't read about it, we don't know what to look out for, she said. Then she untied the twine and unrolled the paper, as if that had settled things. I sighed, turning around and locking my office door. Reading that paper, bringing it into the house, felt wrong with you there. It was like finding a loaded gun and bringing it indoors. When I turned around again, your mother was crying. Her eyes were shooting around the page wildly, like she didn't believe what she was reading, as if reading it over and over again would somehow change the words. She collapsed onto the floor, the paper falling out of her hands and drifting down next to her. It took her hours to calm down, for the words to come through her sobs, for her eyes to open again and see through the tears. She must have drank around ten glasses of water and paced ten miles around the room. And then she led me back to the office and started reading the article out loud. Right away, I understood why it had affected her so much. Right away, I was scared shitless like she was. Because it was about us. This is what she read. Ordinary mother slaughters family, takes on life. It was absolutely brutal, said a local officer. There was blood everywhere. Who would do that to a kid? To their own kid? Indeed, the officer wasn't alone. Several members of law enforcement and medical professionals could be spotted pacing outside the suburban home, looking lost, horrified, and nauseous. Just yesterday, the redacted home was a picture-perfect slice of a suburbia. Now it's still cordoned off by yellow police tape, surrounded by half a dozen police and forensic vehicles, and filled to the brim with people in uniform. I just don't understand, said a neighbor. They're saying that she killed her husband and their son. It makes no sense. The neighbor who lives across the street from the redacted family had a similar reaction. We've never had something like this happen in this neighborhood. Never. We're decent people who just want a safe place to raise their families. This is a disgrace. Indeed, most people who have known the redacteds have similar reactions. They seem nice and normal, like the ideal family. There were no warning signs. Things like this happen from time to time, said Chief from the local PD. People just snap and take their whole families out. Unfortunately, it's something that's rare but not unheard of. In the wake of the brutal crime, the shocked community is already trying to move on. The older kids are already talking, so we're trying to take to our little ones first, says another local neighbor. How do you explain that though? How do you explain what you did to her own son and husband? We're thinking of saying that she had a drug problem or something. Maybe that'll be easier for a kid to understand. Most people in the neighborhood looked lost on that fateful day. Standing in their driveways and front porches often in nothing but their pajamas. Watching the police wheel the body bags away on stretchers, shielding their children's eyes. We hope that they find a way to understand what happened and are able to regain some semblance of normalcy. 
Your mother started crying again after she read it aloud. I wished I could have read it myself, that I could have spared her from reading it again, from me living in those awful words. I tossed the paper and all the others in a garbage bag and walked it out to the curb. If the paper knew what I was going to do, it didn't try to stop me. We had already read it and the damage had already been done. I tossed the bag into the storm drain at the end of our street. I knew that throwing something in the drain like that was harmful and I felt bad doing it. But there was no way I was throwing the papers away in the regular trash. They had done enough harm already. And the worst was yet to come. Thank you all very much for listening to today's stories. I hope you enjoyed them. I would also like to extend a big thank you to today's sponsor, ExpressVPN. If you visit my special link right now, expressvpn.com slash you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support the show, watch what you want to watch, and protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash I hope you all have a great day or night, wherever you may be in the world. Stay hydrated during these hot summer months. And as always, stay creepy.